When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Christian Cooper, Black Project, and this is Talking Schmidt. It's cool, like tonight is the night. Here we go again. Just give it the old cause turn. Our big dog's in. Schmitty. 96 times, Schmitty. Thanks, Schmitty. We on? Schmitty. Talking Schmidt. That's called going to the hospital, bitch. I can <laughs> shit my pants. Your Rolodex is fucking deep. It's about the one, the one, the one. Who is this guy who thinks he's tough shit? What's up? We're tastemakers. Come on, Smitty, what the fuck? Let's hear it for Greg Swift. Yeah! All right, kids, today we're going to go way the fuck back to the days of Rocker Spine Ramp, Team Yahtzee, PA Sports Shop. You know we're going to go in on G-Rails, and we're going to bring it all the way to the fucking present. This is a longtime homie from the peninsula. Welcome to the show. This is Christian Cooper. What's Thanks, up? Schmitty. Thanks, man. It's an honor. Stoked. <laughs> I've, uh, I think we go back about 30 years. And before we get started, I, I owe you an apology that's about 30 years overdue. Bad. <laughs> I love this. Uh, Christmas party at the RC house. I'm the guy that puked out the window of the bedroom. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but uh, um, was there uh, was there blended mudslides going on, dude? You guys had all the airplane flasks, like little uh, secret Santa under the tree. Yeah, and it was. Uh, I went way out of control real fast, and I ended up in jail that night too. So um, no way, hop, skip, but, and a jump. From but that. I apologize for leaving the, the contents of my stomach on the windowsill of your house. <laughs> That house was gnarly. I passed out on the front porch so many times because there was a couch out there. You right. go out to get fresh air and you just wake up at like four in the morning like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it, that, that house was the rager though. You guys had the killer. That's the OG crib ramp before the crib ramp, right? Yeah. And we used to roll up there and uh, so that was 90. So you guys had the Samoan neighbors that were cooking pigs in the dirt, the whole the whole thing, right? Right, yeah, yeah. That um, was the ramp that had like an extension in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. was like small extensions everywhere. There's a photo of Phil actually all into fakie off the extension over me doing a layback Smith under him. It's <laughs> like my favorite. Yeah, it's like so epic. I don't think anything good that good ever happened again. <laughs> I I can't remember. I mean, we used to we used to roll up there from PA and skate with you guys once in a while, and I, I think there was some roof shenanigans that went on because the the ramp was kind of backed up close to the house, right? So I think there was some stuff, but yeah, Phil was just ruled. Yeah, I think the ox would go up onto the uh, roof and then come back in, like roll in and stuff. Not too many people fucked with the roof that I saw, but yeah, I think Pete for sure. Yes, yeah, so that was probably. Are you thinking nineteen ninety? That was ninety because that's when Greer got made. That's when I moved back to NorCal from Santa Barbara, and I don't know. I think you guys were coming down skating Mookies with us. You know, Hell yeah! Ramp, okay. It had like the kind of nine foot and the seven foot. Uh, that ramp was super good. Dude, Mookie's was our favorite. Yeah, it was super good. We skated that with uh, Justin and Scott Cox, Cox Brothers. Uh -huh. Doug Smith would come. Like everybody would come. You know? The highlight for us was one time Mike Carroll climbed over the fence, like his first time. And he's like, is there any... And we're like, Mike Carroll's here? Like, this is <laughs> legit. <laughs> yeah, and he was he was just sort of that's when all those kids were just kind of coming into their own right right like they were little but they were already ripping when we we knew who they were but yeah it was yeah. uh there was that other huge one i think it was like magdalena or something it dan was like Wertos's, super wide yeah that was dan wertos's ramp and uh one of my favorite photos i have of me skating is doing a money grind on the extension there that just looks so sketch like full toes the whole thing and it's just i know it's a make because i didn't die so yeah. stoked but yeah dan was rad his dad was a, a neurosurgeon and just let him build that massive ramp in the front yard they had a tennis court and stuff it was like rich los altos hills action right, right? kind of it was um, like post page mill i think yeah but dan was super rad so it was like okay so calvin dan coons fedge mm -hmm. gary uh, all the Los Altos crew, all those kids, you know, Danny Stevenson, Peter Pierce, all the PA page mill kids. Like that was just kind of our go-to when we weren't skating page mill, you know, yeah. page mill, uh, like by 90 page mill was gone. You yeah. Know? It was, it, that was like mid to late eighties. And that ramp went through two incarnations at Mike's house. But before that it was at the DeHaunt brothers house, which was on the other side of the freeway from there. I didn't know that. Yeah. We built this big vert ramp and these, these, kids i think they were from denmark or something Stephen peter DeHaan, right so we built this big vert ramp it only had a deck on one side plywood surface you know old the ghetto way wherever you can get the wood build it right um so that was the original page mill before page mill and that lasted all of four months and those kids actually skated really good but their mom just wasn't having it so then we dismantled it we took everything to mike's and Mike's mom wasn't having it either, but somehow we had that, that vert ramp there for years, you know. And his name was Mike McIntyre, right? That's right. right. And then and there was the other Mike McIntyre that did Sick Boys. They were like yeah, same video, name, different video dude. guy. Yeah, I think I think they had a different spelling of their last name, but um, yeah, same name. And Mike was rad. I mean, it just that that whole Page Mill scene was crazy. Uh, all the San Jose guys were always there. That's where Fedge kind of bloomed. Is That's that where, where you met Fedge? No, I actually met Fedge a long time before that, going back to like 84 maybe. Oh, shit. And, Menlo uh, Park. 
Yeah, they had, okay, so I think it was either Dave Cox or Troy Slider's house. They had built this little half pipe, super janky, like ditch trannies, whatever. And I heard about it and I rolled over there and there were these guys that I went to high school with um, that were total goons, but somehow they were all kind of connected to Jeff and Troy and all those dudes. And I showed up there and that's where I first saw Fedge and, you know, long haired hippie Dungeons and Dragons, whatever. And, and he was, <laughs> he, he, those guys were all just getting into it. Like they came in after the, the whole learning curve that we did starting in the 70s, right? And Fedge went from being this just, we were just kind of like, ah, oh, this hippie dude, whatever, to like, holy shit, he's the invert king, he's turning pro, you know, I mean, stuff, stuff happened fast, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I met those guys. And then when, when the kiddie pool started going in the 80s, like, those guys would come up there, and we were all like backyard pool guys from way back. So, it was like Fedge and those dudes would show up, and they were just feeling it out, and we we're just like ripping around in there, just going like, yeah, whatever, you got to figure it out, you know? So yeah, those were, those are good times, you know? And, and that was like the dead time too, when skateboarding was just, it wasn't happening. The industry was gone. Um, hardly anybody was in it. Right. And, and the, that was the best part because anytime you saw somebody with a skateboard, you're like, I know this dude's down, you know? So you made connections with people. You found out where spots were, you skated together. And it was like, it was a real community, you know? Um, survival right <laughs> yeah i was telling somebody like we would go to punk shows and at that time punk was bigger than skateboarding like there was skaters that went to punk shows but there was lots of punks that didn't skate and it was yeah. like you kind of i lived through kind of like this where it was like now skating's way bigger than the punk scene but like at first it was like that dude skates he's cool like and you would just bond with dudes because you saw that they were skating yep. 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 And it was rad. Like it just, like I said, like it was so small back then that, uh, in the dead time it was rad. Everybody was tight, you know, and then it got big again and then people kind of drifted off and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I would, I've been skateboarding since 1974. And I know you go way back. But 78. It, yeah. And it's, and it's like, so punk came for me, skateboarding was there and then punk came into it. Where were you born and raised? I was born at Kaiser right around the corner from Wallenberg. <laughs> oh, in San Francisco. <laughs> yep. No yep. way. Yeah. And then, uh, when I was about two, we ended up, we ended up way up in the mountains near skyline. So I was growing up in the mountains. Um, and I was like this little feral child, you know, you, you live next store to, uh, Young, Neil Young? I don't know what was up there. I just know there were all these hippie communes when I was a little <laughs> kid. And there was a lot of weirdness up in the hills. I mean, we're talking like way up at the crest, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had dogs. I had a dirt bike. And I had like 99 acres of nothing around me to run around, build forts. And, you know, oh, imagine all this rad shit. Like I'm fighting Indians. or I'm fighting. Yeah, dude, totally. <laughs> and um, so like, yeah, in, you know, in 1974, there was a kid that lived about two miles up the road. I think his name was Jeff Hall or something. And it was the first time I ever saw a skateboard. He was a couple years older than me and he had a skateboard. And at his house, they had this uh, cement oval around a lawn in the front yard. And I went to his house one day and he's pushing around on the skateboard. I was like, ah, oh, it looks fun, you know? So 
got on it, started rolling around. I was like, oh, this is killer, you know? So then like kids do, you know, we go out to the road and it's this really steep road and it's not smooth and it's curvy and all this stuff. And we start daring each other, like, you're going to go down the hill. Oh, you're going to go down the hill. No, you're going to go down the hill. It's back and forth. Finally, I was just like, all right, I'll do it. So I get on this board. I just stand on it and gravity takes me. And all of a sudden I was just cooking down this hill. And I realized, you know, there's that moment when, you know, later when you've been skateboarding for years, you bomb a hill, there's that, there's that window where you're like, okay, this could go wrong real quick Yeah. or, or I'm going to somehow pull it. Well, I didn't pull it. I ended up eating shit, rolling across the asphalt, gravel in my elbows, blackberry thorns in me, just roasted. Right. <laughs> and I come up and I'm kind of brushing the dirt off and, you know, I'm nine years old. I'm like, Whoa, that was heavy. And I look back and this dude is gone. Right. Like he just cut. It's like, Oh shit. You know, I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, you know, and he bailed. So I was like, well shit. All right. So I walked home with the skateboard. Right. It's like two miles or something. And I get home and I have the skateboard. I'm all bloody. I get gravel, dirt, shit all over me. And my mom's like, what the, what the fuck is it? What happened to you? And what is, where'd the skateboard come from? What is this? And I, I told her what happened and she's like, well, you know, you sh you're going to have to give that back. And I was like, no, you know, why? That sucks. This dude just burned me. And then my dad says, you know, no, keep it, you know, screw that guy. And that's how it all started. I mean, I fell in love with it through eating shit and wrecking myself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, from there, like, uh, we lived up in the mountains until like 76 and then we moved down to the flats and I lived about two miles from the Los Altos pool, the original, they called it the, the orange bowl or shred weasels. It had all these names and I figured out where it was and it was this old pink and orange kidney that's in the really early skateboarder magazines. There's photos of it. And at that point, you know, I had sort of gotten hold of one of these surfer print fiberglass boards with the semi-precision bearings, Cadillac, trucks, whatever it was. Yeah. I found out where this pool was and I went there and I had no concept of what you're supposed to do. So I'm in there barefoot, you know, trying to just kind of circling the drain, just sort of trying to figure it out. And then mm. all the heads start showing up. It's Blackheart. It's Donnie Polk. It's the Buck brothers. It's like these guys who I didn't know who any of them were at the time. They just seemed like old, long haired, pot smoking, ne'er do well types. Right. Right. And to see those guys show up there and do what they could do, it was like, whoa, like <laughs> this is a whole different ball game. Cause up to that point, you know, the skateboarder magazines I had seen, it's Mike weed, you know, carving under the light at the Kona bowl or something. Right. So mm -hmm. I, it didn't even occur to me. It's like, you can actually go all the way up the wall. And if you're really nuts, you can hit the lip and somehow come back. Like I, I just, you know, I had to try to wrap my head around it. So for like a, a solid year, I was going to that pool every chance I got, right? And, you know, it rains a lot. So I, I showed up one day and there's all this water in the bottom. I'm like, oh, man, what a bummer. I'm not going to be able to ride. And I'm standing down there and Blackheart and all those dudes show up and they go, hey, kid, stay there. And they toss a bucket down to me and they're like, start bailing the water, right? okay, you know, whatever. So I'm down there carrying buckets up and they're all sitting in the shallow end drinking beer, you know, <laughs> smoking a joint. They're just laughing. Classic. I get all the water out. I get it down to the drain and 
you know, basically this guy comes down, I don't remember who it was, they come down and scoop the last of the water out, they put their little drain cover in. I walk back up to the shallow and they're like, okay, you got to beat it, kid. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I just bailed the pool for these guys and now they're going to leave. <laughs> so I was just kind of like, I, you know, I was, I was just young enough where I was like intimidated and didn't want to deal with it. And then I just thought like, no, you know what? I'm just going to go over here and like hide in the bushes and wait. And they saw me hiding in the bushes. So they were like, come on, come on, come on, you know? And then they, they start showing me, you know, like do this, do that, put your damn shoes on you stupid kid. You're not supposed to be doing this barefoot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, it was insane, you know? Um, All so right. that's, that's where sort of like, you know, I had that pool experience early on and I got to see some of the greatest people do it. And I, wasn't really aware of what I was witnessing until later, you know. Uh huh. It was kick ass. Yeah, I remember the exact same feeling you're describing. Like we're kind of just cruising the pool, like bare. And then the first time you saw somebody get like all the way up, you're like, "What the? F-? Yeah, you never thought that was even a possibility." Right. Right. And and these guys were do they were going after it. I mean, it wasn't like. You know, they were kind of working their way up to it. These dudes were in there as first run. They're they're getting tiles and they're clicking the lip and stuff. And it was like, whoa, this is serious business, you know. Yeah. And that was that was in that moment where skateboarding just was about to like just launch into this progression that just like got so fast, right? So you know, the following years, I had this cousin. He lived in San Jose. And he's like five years older than me. And he was sort of, you know, he was into the whole skateboard scene. He was into early punk music. You know, he's into the Dead Boys and the Sex Pistols and all this stuff. And so he's like completely corrupting me as a kid, right? Like, you got, you got to listen to this. You got to do this. You got to do that. Yeah. And um, and so, you know, I'm like getting that influence. And I'm looking at Skateboarder Magazine. And I'm doing all these like, you know, chores and stuff to try to earn money to buy skateboard stuff. And the parks start opening up. Right. So, you know, my grandparents are in Sacramento. I go up there. uh, They take me to this place, Skateboard Palace in Carmichael, which was this giant Quonset hut where they had just pushed, I don't know how many truckloads of concrete into the place and poured these bowls and a snake run. And it was ghetto, dude, rough. Right. And it was all painted. They had these these two bowls in the back with tiles, no coping. And it was super primitive. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I walked in that place and it was like, my mind was blown. I was like, this is paradise. This is the best thing ever, you know? So you get in there and you're, you're trying to figure it out. And then from there, you know, the parks started popping up. There was Alameda, Sierra wave and SAC, you know, there was a park up in Twain Hart up in the mountains. Oh and shit. Those first gen parks were just, they were awful. Right. But to a kid, and it's all new and nobody's ever done it before. You're like, there's nothing better than this. You know, uh-huh. these people are making stuff for us to play, you know? Yeah. Um, and, Was that and the it, early eighties then? Oh no, this is like 77. Oh, late seventies. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, 77, 78, it's like Winchester, Milpitas, Campbell, spinning wheels, all these other parks start opening up around the Bay area. And I'm, I'm starting to get to this point now where it's like, it's this all consuming thing. Like all I want to do is, ride a skateboard and how are you getting there your parents taking you bus bike really you know yeah so so the way it worked with winchester campbell milpitas is that i'd get a ride i'd get them to sign the waiver that you had to sign if you were you know a minor 
um, they'd pay for the membership, whatever it was for the year. It was like eight bucks or something. Uh-huh. And then they, you know, they weren't super supportive of it. They, they were like, you know, if you want to do this, you can earn the money. You can figure out the bus to get here. And it's, it's your thing. Uh-huh. And, you know, at the same time, like I had started playing soccer when I was like four years old and I got mm, recruited into private club level, you know, the intense competitive shit really yeah, early. CYSA. Yeah, CYSA, Los Altos Soccer Club. And, that was uh, me, you San know, Carlo. So gnarly. Like we, it, it became this big, serious, competitive thing, and it was a year-round thing. You had to work out and whatever. And um, there was a tipping point where it's like, I think everybody around me was like, no, you need to do that because that has a future. The skateboard doesn't have a future at all, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But to me, it's like, what future? I, I want to I have fun. Yeah. Right? Uh, and, it, and it got so crazy where they, they made you sign a contract with the team saying, I won't ride a skateboard, I won't do this, I won't BMX, I won't do any of these things because I don't want to injure myself and, and risk the reputation and the quality of the team that I'm a part of, right? Which, you know, every, every day that went by, I was getting more and more jaded with that. And, and we won a state championship under 12s. I mean, it was a serious, serious thing, but, but skateboarding was what I wanted to do, you know? So, yeah, it just, it, it was nuts. And what was funny was occasionally I'd run across a dude on my soccer team skateboarding somewhere. And we're like, oh, you, you know, we got to keep this a secret because it's one of the ones. Out, yeah. We're busted, you know. So I remember really vividly going to uh, Covington Junior High School in Los Altos. They drained the big Olympic sized pool. And I went over there to skate it. And I think I, I think I had like a Z Flex board with alligator wheels. And, Bennett's or something and I show up there and I climb the fence and I get in there and there's two guys on my soccer team in there and I was like oh shit busted right like but then I realized like well I'm not going to tell on them they're not going to tell on me we're all good so I was pulling it I was getting away with it you know um and yeah just like I just spent a hell of a lot of time on the bus going to the park on the bus coming back and yeah, you know, the bus the, system was good back then. I mean, it yeah. might still be, but uh, for the peninsula, we could get to Montague Bank somehow. I don't know how yep. we did it. Yeah, that's that's how it went, dude. You, you'd get on the 22 and you'd go down El Camino to wherever you needed to branch off. And then, yeah, whatever. it was I'm Transfer gonna, City. Like, dude, yep. they'd be yep. like, take the 7B to the 22 to the 5L, and then you go across, and there's a 7-Eleven, the first right, and you'll see the, you're just like, okay, yep. I'm going. Yeah. And so, you know, that was, that was in a time too, where like, I don't think parents had an issue letting their kid get on a bus and be gone all day. Right. Nowadays, right. Like, oh no, that's not happening. Right. Yeah. You'll, you'll be abducted. You'll be whatever's going to happen. Yeah. But, yeah. It was a, a more innocent time. Oh uh, yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Did you so, ever make it up North? Did you like go to San Mateo? There was the spillway. I, I, I rode the spillway a bunch. Um, and that oh. was later, like in the 80s, after the parks all closed and stuff. That's what, right when that. I started, like, really skating. Like, when I got my first board, I think it was 82, maybe. Like, my first real one. And right. uh, it was from Go Skate, which was on the same street. And the guy was just like, go up the hill. There's a spillway up there. Everyone skates. And me and my friend just went up there. And that was our introduction to, to like... <laughs> Like kind of like you said when you saw Blackheart and those dudes, it was the same feeling. Like long haired dude smoking weed, drinking, yep. like ripping the ditch, and you're just like, I want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Belmont drop. That yeah, place. 
it had a bunch of different names. I think they called it the back door at one point. And, yeah, uh, Bryce called it the Belmont Drop. I never heard that before. And then a lot of people have called it that. But uh, we always yeah. called it the Spillway. It's funny. That place, before I ever skated it, it was people were skating it in the mid-70s. And then somebody tarred it, graveled it. And then somebody went in and scraped all the tar and gravel. And it was stable yeah. again in the 80s. Like It was one of those spots that, you know, it just kind of – it kept getting resurrected and people kept riding it. So you had like that weird little mini ramp section down at the bottom. And then up at the top was the big basin that you could zip across, you know? Right. And I mean, as far as skate spots go, it wasn't anything great, Uh but you were stoked to ride it. Cause they built ramps and it was, it was just kind of this whole thing where it's like the starting ramp and then you're just cruising. You're, you're not doing any tricks back then. You're just lucky to get like down to the bottom because it was on a hill. Did you did you ever like try to bomb it or anything and go like Nah, but I saw it in a something else in Thrasher. The guy's like butt boarding and I think he's jumping over like six stack boards or something. Yep. It's yep. S- something yep. like that. Did yeah. you escape Bombora? Yeah, I did actually. No um, way. Yeah. So lucky. Like seventy seven or so, like the first time I went to the the Palo Alto skate shop and sports shop skate shop, um, Dell thirteen, Steve Weston was working there. And he's the skate mechanic from the early Thrasher magazines, right? Uh-huh. And, and Weston was the raddest dude. He's this geeky looking dude with Coke bottle glasses. First guy I ever saw that had a tattoo that was sort of like not a sailor or some kind of crusty old truck driver guy. He's like this young dude working in the skate shop. He had a tattoo on his arm. And I'd, I'd go in there every chance I got and just hang out and just pick that dude's brain. Like I just bug him like, where's this? Where's that? How do I get here? Well, you know, like... And I think he sort of recognized that I was so rabid and I just wanted everything that he's telling me, okay, kid, I'm going to turn you on to this spot or that spot. So all of those spots, Bombora, the mud pit behind Stanford, the spillway, uh, dude, countless, you know, Granny's pool in Palo Alto, like all these places was, it was all Weston telling me like, hey, go here, do this. And he was like mentoring me really like teaching me like, this is how you carry yourself be cool. Don't fuck up, you know? And it, and it was awesome. It was like having like an older brother, right? Like somebody. And he was, and he was giving me a full like bro flow from the shop. So like when I, when I didn't have enough money to buy something, he'd be like, yeah, just take it kid. You know, whatever. So Palo Alto had skateboards in the seventies. Mid seventies is when they started the skateboard shop in there. Wow. Okay. And it was, it was parked in the back and you know, it, it kind of moved around and got reconfigured, but yeah, it was, it was the place, you know, in Palo Alto. Uh-huh. Um, the other option was you could go to this place called the sports exchange where people sort of traded in used stuff Okay, and you, could yeah. go and you could buy like beat up stuff or whatever you'd buy a, buy a complete there that was beat, but the trucks were good. So you could for pennies on the dollar get, you know, components you needed. Mm-hmm. But, but basically I, I got a lot of stuff for super good discount from Steve at the shop. So that was kind of my thing, you know? Mm. And yeah, I mean that, at that time, I mean, none of the people that I really went to school with at my school were that into it, you know? And I just was kind of on my own doing it. And so Steve was just telling me like, yeah, go bail out grannies. There's two feet of water in it, you know? <laughs> and, and that's just what I did. I just thought like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a part of this rad thing. I'll do the work. So, uh huh. It was super cool. When did Gary come into it? Um, Gary started working there, God, I want to say like 80, 
84, 85, maybe. I mean, oh, he could okay. tell you for sure. But yeah, it was like it was like right around the mid eighties. Weston, um, I think he had some substance issues. Not that it ever really was a problem to anybody, but I think he just kind of like moved on from that gig, and Gary took over, and so he ran the shop. And, and you know, Gary, dude, he's like he's a very like business like, very professional, very polite guy. So he ran the shop much more like you know, hey, like. It's, everything's got to be clean. Everything's got to be nice. We got to treat everybody right. And I ended up actually working there for a little while in the eighties too, you know, so, with Gary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we worked there together and, um, yeah, it was, it was insane. That was, you know, right around the time, like the kiddie pool started going off and we were skating that, uh, it was, it was a really nuts time, you know? And it was, it was one of those things, like, I'm one of those kids that wrote a letter to Thrasher talking about how much BMX sucked and they printed it and all that. Did you they know. print it? Oh, yeah. It's in there. It's in the, um, oh, God. I think it's like November 82 issue, I think. Damn. And it's this rambling diatribe about, yeah, we've got the kiddie pool. We've got the mud pit. We've got these ramps. we got this dog that shits on our ramp. <laughs> you know, if you're a, if you're a beginner don't go here, go there. Like it was this whole NorCal pride, you know, BMX sucks thing. Yeah. And it's so funny. I, I had this little, uh, text conversation with Sam Cunningham and I was laughing because he wrote a total BMX hate letter to Thrasher. And I started realizing like all these contemporaries of that time all did that. Right. None of us were talking about it. We all just did it. It's yeah. Like thing, right. Like BMX sucks. Uh -huh. right? So well, yeah. Fuck you go to a skate park and there's a bike there. You're just so terrified and bummed like Dude, yeah. if you run into me i'm dead yeah yeah well so in the late 70s you know winchester milpitas uh, most of the parks they didn't let bikes in campbell mm. did so campbell had bmx guys and that was just kind of the way it was um my sort of bmx hate stems from after milpitas closed and the park just sat there waiting to be demolished and we used to take the bus over there and just go skate all day, right? It's closed skate park, fences yeah. are torn down, no no cops. Like skateboarding wasn't even on the police radar, right? Like it wasn't a thing that they needed to worry about. So we go over there and we're skating, been there all day, and all of a sudden I'm I'm like standing there and this this kid rides up on a BMX bike, he's like, Hey, why are you fucking with my brother? I was like, what? Like, I hadn't had any altercations with anybody. And I realized, like, it's just somebody trying to pick a fight, right? And this dude's big, you know? So I was like, oh, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And I, and I grabbed this other dude that I'm with. I'm like, get out of here, right? So we start leaving, and we're skating the road out to Park Victoria Boulevard to go get on the bus. And this other dude rolls up and just smacks me in the face with a rock, right? <laughs> And, and all of a sudden we're surrounded by these kids on bikes and it's like, oh fuck, we're going to catch such a gnarly beat down. It's like 12 kids, you know, two of us. I got blood coming out my nose and the whole thing. And we just, dude, we just start pushing as fast as we can towards the street. We, we go right in the middle of the street. There's some old guy coming down the street in a Volkswagen and we're like waving at him like, stop, stop. And the guy like sees all the blood and he stops and we pile into his car and he's like, what's up? And we're like, those guys are going to kill us, right? <laughs> so he's like, all right, you know, and he, and he drove us off. He saved us from getting beat up, you know. And, and from that point on, I was just like, fuck these bike dudes, man. Like, I, I'm not, you know, whatever. And I think there was this thing too where – you know, we had skate parks, we built ramps, we did all these things, we cleaned out ditches or whatever. And we always kind of felt like, oh, now the bike guys are just going to come in and ride our coattails. And they're not doing any of this stuff, right? Go play in the dirt, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I mean, I've been to skate parks before, like uh, Newburgh, for example, later in life, is a cement park made for skateboarding that is right next to a bike track, a dirt. Right. Like, if I had a bike, I'd want to ride that. But the fucking guys come in and they're into this. And you're like, dude, there's a thing built for you right next to us. This is built for us. Like, yeah. And you're not, I don't know, you whatever. Yeah. Never wanted to be the police or nothing, but it was just like... No. Yeah, and I mean it's just that 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 BMX versus skateboarding thing goes way way back. You know? Yeah, I think some people it's from when skateboarder turned into action now, and they started putting BMX in our beloved skateboarding magazine, and we all got pissed. Whatever it was, whatever it was, man, I don't know. Yeah, uh, you know, I I, I I dig BMX dudes. I stuff I've seen people do. I'm like, well, I don't want any part of that. You know? Yeah, I mean, I but, started on BMX for sure. Like I was doing that before skating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there were like when I was in junior high, maybe like sixth grade, there were some kids that were pretty good at dudes, dudes that had real balls that go off these big jumps and stuff. And I, I tinkered around with it a little bit, but it just wasn't my thing. Skateboarding was my thing. You know, we used to go to those fire trails that you would just bomb a hill and there was jumps everywhere and it was yeah. just psycho. Yeah. It was super crazy. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Was, once we got into skateboarding, we just ditched our, like our bikes were done. My friend, you know, Ryder, he, he built a vert ramp in his backyard when we were kids. That was the, that was how we learned how to skate transition. Basically just like first ramp was two by four trannies, just fucking horrible. And then, oh, you build trannies like this. So we, we redid the ramp ramp actually was pretty decent like keith and uh camden and city guys would come down and skate it yeah. and we'd be like oh you know like getting a taste of airs and shit like how you're supposed to do them instead right. of behind your foot early grab like yeah and when, when you're a kid and you see that the first time it's mind-blowing because you see like you know there was no internet there was no video back then so you look at skateboarder magazine you see these still photos right and even before the ones where they had sequences You'd look at it and you'd spend hours trying to pick it apart. How how do you how do that? How does he get right? to that what, position? How yeah. do you get there? And then the first time you actually see somebody do it, you're like, I get it now, you know. And up to that point, you're bunny hopping and doing stupid shit, trying to oh, this is, and you look horrible. Yeah. And fortunately, nobody's filming it, so you don't get to see how horrible you really were, <laughs> <laughs> right? But yeah, I mean, we had uh, I don't know back around like seventy eight, seventy nine. This this cat moved out from Florida, he moved into my neighborhood and his dad built him a full blown U pipe, no flat bottom, half pipe, uh, eight feet wide, 12 feet tall. The guy even took like two by fours and rounded the edge and milled it out and put concrete in the groove so you could grind it and it felt like coping. I mean, this, this was some weird shit, right? And that was like sort of my first experience with something that wasn't round wall where you're just like gyrating back and forth. And so, you know, learn how to do like proper fakies and stuff. It was like a whole, whole different deal. But for me, it's like having started in the whole pool thing, like flat facing walls just never did it for me. Right. Mm. So even like when Paige Mill was going on, like that wasn't really my bag. Like, you know, I'd go skate the vert ramp or whatever, but it just never felt right to just be riding this big slab to me. You know, I, I wanted to carve, I wanted to turn, I wanted to do all these yeah. different things. Um, so fish yeah. Banks. <laughs> yeah. Fish banks. Fish yeah, banks. Fish banks, Memorex, fucking. Yeah. Available out on 237 Montague. I mean, Dude. we rode everything. Like it, it, there was this point in the eighties where it was like, 
you know, the dawn of modern street skating, let's call it, right? And you had these obstacle contests that they'd put on in Goldgate Park or San Jose on the 4th of July. And you just, you're so into skateboarding that everything is potential terrain. Everything's a potential spot. I mean, the time zone banks, uh, San Antonio Shopping Center. Those oh, brick, yeah. Like, that was like, I spent hours there just banging up those things and grinding that, banging up those things and grinding that, breaking bolts and having bolts in my pocket knowing I was going to break bolts because I was going to skate there all day. Like, yeah. Del, Del's wall, that big that big wall. Under the oh, freak. right. That's still yeah. good there, I think. Yeah. Dude, we, we had crazy sessions at that place like in the 80s when you remember Chudu, um, that Vietnamese kid that rode for our shop and Ferdy and all those, the jump ramp kids that used to hang out. Me, not guys really. really. Chudu was rad. He skated everything really good. Like he used to skate Mookies with us and stuff. But uh. when those kids were coming up, um, at one point they came and dumped all these pieces of railroad rail down at Dell's Wall. Okay? Yeah. And what we did was we got a bunch of people. We lifted up one end. We put a bunch of railroad ties under it. So it was like this big incline slider. And these things were like 60 feet long. Yeah, and I remember we, that. I, I was trying to be like the board slide king at that point. You know, yeah. just anything. I'm going to board slide it. I'm going to go as far as fast, you know, whatever. With uh, rails, right? With rails, with G-rails. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, because I've gone to – okay, so I just found this spot that we skated when I was a kid that says – long ass double side curb in San Mateo that's kind of on a little hill. Right. And I remember I used to board slide the whole thing. I might have front boarded it, but I'm not claiming, but like I know I board slid it the whole time like easy. And then I just went there and I was like, fuck, I suck now. I couldn't like I was like, there's no way I could do this. And then I was talking to McKinney and he's like, dude, we wrote you rode rails back then. It's yeah. way easier. I was like, oh, okay, maybe that's it. Yeah, I'm I'm guilty. I still put rails on my boards, you know. And it's I'm just, thinking about it. I'm because I just wanted. I'm going back to like I really want to just board slide everything, like you're saying. Like that's so fun, long board yeah. slides. Yeah, I I was always trying to find the weirdest stuff, like anything that had like a curve in it or something that went up or down. I mean, it was like you know we we had the Seven Eleven parking lot downtown Palo Alto with yeah, all those yeah. different curbs, right? And there was that one that kind of went downhill and it was double sided and you could you could go you could smith grind up. Oh yeah. Did they call it the glass something. banks? No, it was just it was just seven eleven what we called it. Okay, because um, there was a where, block or two down that had one that had all these glass I think we called it the glass bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so that was like team Yahtzee territory over there. Oh uh, yeah. Marty and all those cats and uh yeah, I mean, that, that 7-Eleven parking lot at one point in, I don't know, it was 85 or something, um, Gary got Tony Hawk and Lance to come uh, to do an autograph signing at the shop, right? And I I brought this little bump ramp with me down there about an hour into it, and I walked into the shop, and I'm just like, let's go skating. Nobody wants to sit behind this counter. All, like, what are you doing, right? And they, and they weren't under contract to skate. It wasn't a demo. Like they weren't supposed to, uh -huh. but sure enough, we dragged Lance and Tony over to Seven Eleven. We brought out this little bump ramp and they stoked the kids out. Like, you know, that was, that was back when I worked at the shop and it was, it was like the kids' minds were blown because all they thought they were going to get was a signed Powell poster. Right. And all of a sudden now it's like a two man demo. You know, right. and all the locals are like trying to show off in front of Lance and Tony and, and all the <laughs> kids were just like, they were so hyped. And I have one photo that Matt Salcedo shot from that day. 
And I recently shared that with Lance and Tony. I'm just like, I just want to let you guys know, like all the way back, like you stoked these kids out so hard, right? Like they, they had, they didn't think they were going to get treated to that that day, you know? Mm. So it was insane. Yeah. It was, it was crazy times. Is, are you in, in that time? Are you doodling and drawing and shit or did that? Yeah. Come later? I mean, I, I always kind of like from the time I was a little kid, I always liked to make little books and draw pictures and do all this stuff. And so I drew that classic horrible logo for the shop of the the smith grind on the hip of the pool the triangular white pa sticker yeah and that was kind of my first foray into like no way commercial commercial art you yeah know, I, I think i got paid in wheels or something to do it but, um, <laughs> 52s yeah and and it's funny like it that that drawing was based off that bill sharp photo of jay smith uh, on the hip of that pool he's doing a Smith grind before a Smith grind. It's a J Smith grind really. Um, that's on the cover of the back in the day book that Ozzy put out. Right. Oh, okay. Um, so there's like this gnarly photo of Jay Smith coming up onto the hip and fully slapping his rail down and he's on top of it. And I, it's one of my all time favorite skateboarding photos. So when I drew the, the sticker for the shop, it's like, it had to be that, you know, doesn't, doesn't look anything like Jay Smith. It's dude's got no pads, torn up jeans, a squeeb haircut, the whole deal. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. But it was, yeah, that was it. So that, and then, and then I did a couple of other pieces of art for them, but, um, you know, it's just basically just kind of like screwing around with it, um, until I went to art school and kind of figured out like, oh, I want to do this. I don't want to be a nine to five suit wearing jerk. Yeah. And you went to art school in Santa Barbara? Well, so I went to, um, like 86, 87, I was going to the Academy of Art College in San Francisco. Mm. So I was taking Caltrain up from PA every day, going to school and learn. I was, I was like an illustration major, right? And they had like a two-year AA program. So I went through all that. Um, then I got out of there and I was like, well, what am I going to do? And, I, and then I was, I was going down to Santa Barbara just to hang out with friends. I met this girl. Next thing I know, I moved down there. And uh, down there, I was just kind of taking some UC classes and having a, I had a job and just skating the campus and skating at Powell you know, and hanging out with all these people at Skate at Pal, driving yeah. Frankie Hill and his buddies around all these spots because they were too young. They didn't have cars and, you Rad. know, seeing like Frankie and Brandon Chapman and Emmerich Pratt, Kit Erickson, all these cats, like they were young and they were like, they were just hungry and they ripped, right? So it was super rad to like just hang out with all those kids. And you got to understand, dude, like by the mid 80s as a skateboarder, um, like I'm washed up. I've been doing it so long and it's like my body's trashed, but I can't stop. I can't get away from it. It's like all, all I want to do. I, I want, it's that one thing in my life that doesn't change, you know? So, yeah, I mean, and, and then from there, like I, I moved back up in 90 and uh, that's when they start pouring Greer and I was like, okay, I'm going to get a job. I'll start saving money to go to CCAC in Oakland, go to art school and, you know, just screwed around for two years, saving money for college and doing that. So, and that's when I met all you guys and there was right. that whole scene. And um, so when you moved back, did you move to Palo Alto? I moved back to Palo Alto and just was kind of living there and doing my thing. I was working at a computer company that was right across the freeway from Greer. So when uh, they were pouring okay. it, I was like right there. So every, every day on my lunch hour. Was, Remember skating it before it had decks? Yep. So, oh, we, we skated like when the first little bowl was poured, you know, some uh -huh. idiot, 
some idiot went in there and left tracks before it was cured all the way, which uh. pissed everybody off, you know, but um, yeah, it was, it was, they kind of built it in sections and before the decks were in, yeah, we, we were in there as much as possible, even though we weren't supposed to be, you know. Yeah, and then the first day, I'm pretty sure the first day there was a collision. Maybe Joey Tershi or a sergeant, somebody broke their arm, I'm pretty sure, first day. Yeah, I don't remember exactly who, but yeah, it got dicey. I mean, the thing was, like, prior to that, Benicia was the only game in town, right? Mm -hmm. The Benicia Speed Bump Park. And then when they built Greer, it was like whoa like this is i mean for me it was like a throwback to the 70s to the old snake runs and the parks and that but um that place had rad lines and the the freight train sessions that would go on there yeah you, you couldn't go opposite direction it was you, just like okay clockwise counterclockwise yep, yep yep you had to get in and you had to and you had to go fast and you had to Dude, keep Doug up Doug smith fucking killed that fucking yep. place early yeah, Doug. i mean and then it was phil kind of like owned it like it was like all right once phil got there and figured it out it was nobody could scale like him but yeah i think phil phil's probably absolutely hands down the all-time ruler of that joint um yeah I, I had my own lines my own stuff that i did there but it's funny so it, it all greer is all connected to all the stuff that happens later that i'll tell you about so i move back up i get set up to go to art school all this stuff and i move up to the city and start going to school and I meet Royce Nelson at school because he goes to the same school. I meet Curtis. Curtis is going to the same art school. So there's a little cabal of East Bay guys that, you know, one campus is in Oakland, one's in San Francisco. And this was right after the Oakland fire, right? So oh. Black Bottom Pool, the boot, uh, yeah. all, these, all these Oakland fire pools that were going. I was dabbling in that, skating the Rock Ridge curbs and just doing my art school thing. And, uh, you know, I was like, I would go skate with Ron Allen, like all these people. I met Ruben, all these dudes, and it, and it was rad. And, like, prior to that, I was I was hanging out in the city and running around with Dawes when he first started Slap. And uh, Jamie Riley, who I actually met in Santa Barbara when I lived there, was, was working on Slap with Lance. And so we were running around in the city at, like, 2 a.m. street skating, too. You know, it's a crazy time, right? And I just, I just kept finding over the years, like, getting reinvigorated by skating, like either through new people I was meeting or new stuff I was trying to skate um, and just being stoked. Like, yeah, man, like I don't have to give this up. Like everybody says you do. Oh, you're too old for that. Whatever the fuck that. Right. Like I'm, I'm doing my thing. Like, you know, and I'm going to try to adapt and sort of keep up with everybody. You know, I, I, I don't have that kind of game, but I'm going to do that. So I'm, I'm getting ready to finish up art school in Oakland and, um, Jamie calls me and he says, yeah, they're looking for an artist at Deluxe, you know, and you should, you should take your portfolio. You should go over there and meet. So I call him up and I talk to Todd Francis and I'm like, Hey, yeah, I want to work there. I want to bring my art over and, and show you what's up. And so I go over there, take my book and I meet Todd and see Jim, Tommy, the whole crew. Right. You know, and it's just like, Oh fuck. Like I've, I've known these guys for years. Like through contests, we used to skate against each other or just seeing each other at all those those spots, all those places, all those times. And I'm just like, Oh, this is rad, you know? Um, and I met Jeff Clint. So when I met Jeff Clint, he shook my hand and gave me this really weird look. Like something was going on. The vibe was weird. Right. And I'm like, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And then, um, 
I get a call from Ron Allen like a couple days later. And he's like, dude, he's like, did you, when Greer first got built, did you do something to Jeff Clint there? And I have no recollection of this, but I'm like, no, dude, I don't know anything about it. He's like, yeah, he said that, uh, he said one day you guys were all skating there and it was like a big freight train thing. And, and he bailed in front of you and his board clipped you and you grabbed his board, threw it over the fence. And then when you came back around, you punched him in the chest and told him to beat it kook and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, I guess I did, <laughs> you know? And I was thinking back to, to Greer and I'm like, yeah, I think I got salty with people a few times there. You know, I lived right down the street. That was my spot. It's like, no, you're not going to blow it here. Uh-huh. So it took about two months of some inner workings at deluxe for Clint to mellow out and realize I wasn't a complete psychopath for me to get that job. Right. And so that's where the real like skateboard graphics stuff started. You know, when I was really like, Oh, like, cause when I was in art school, I had these dreams like, Oh, I'm going to be this bohemian painter and I'm going to like drink mm. bourbon and make paintings for, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and, you know, be like Hunter S Thompson or something. And it was just like, I was realizing real quick, like, dude, that doesn't wash. Like I need to be a commercial artist and make a living. Right. <laughs> and of well, course I picked the worst career. It's like skateboard graphics. You make 12 bucks an hour. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really what I made when I worked. There. What was the first uh, graphic? Okay. So, so when I first started, Todd was like, you know, he had to break me in. Those was the trial period. So what I was doing is I was taking all the graphics he was drawing and making the wheel graphics and the shirt graphics and the sticker graphics because everything matched back then. Right. Mm-hmm. The first board that I drew was Kelch's retirement board. No way. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Kelch had this idea is like this children's book and it's called 10 in a bed. And it's like a rhyming story about these kids being in a bed and, you know, one by one, they roll over and fall out of the bed and then there's nine and then there's eight and then there's seven. So, um, I drew this graphic that's like all the real team guys in a bed and they're all these little caricature, like children's book caricatures of Julian and Kelly bird and, uh, Drake and everybody and Max and then Max's dog is in there. And then Kelch is down on the floor and he's like in a bunny suit and he's got a He's got a baseball cap flipped sideways and he's actually got like five o'clock shadow as a little baby. Right. And so that was like his retirement board. Like he was, he was done, I guess, you know, Jim and Tommy, whatever they decided, like, you know, Kelch is done. Um, then he started another company a couple months later down the street and his first, his first ad and thrasher said something like, I ain't retired bitch. And I totally took it personally. Like he was like pointing at me, even though it had nothing to do with me. You know, I just happened to be the guy that drew the graphics. So that was the first one. Okay. Um, and then from there, it was just mostly, I did a lot of the stereo stuff. Um, oh, really? Todd did a lot of the real stuff. And okay. then when Antihero fired up, um, that was like a lot of guest artist stuff. So uh, Jeff Whitehead was drawing graphics for it, Chris Johansson. And I did a lot of the, production work on the anti-hero stuff and i was always jealous because i was like i want to draw the anti-hero stuff you know yeah but it was usually todd or somebody else and it was all good you know um i did do some anti-boards but most of it was all stereo stuff mckinney was thinking that your first graphic was like a dagger or something he's like ask him about the dagger graphic um, a knife or a sword or something okay so i did a there's a couple of anti-hero graphics i did that were sort of based off tattoo style there's one with a dagger stuck through a scorpion that there's uh, photo, photos of Cardiel riding one at the at the Cambridge pool, like okay. you know, stuff that I've come across. There was uh, 
there was one with like an eager and a da- eagle and a dagger and a heart and all this tattoo motif kind of stuff. Uh, uh-huh. I think one of my favorite anti-hero boards I did was the the get in the van board. There was there were actually two of them. The first one was Julian. They had bought some rickety ass old silver van that they were using to sort of hit the road in. And somebody, I, I don't know if it was Tobin, might have been Tobin, did a drawing of the van. And so I took it and I put this board together. It had this lettering that said, get in the van. Because that was the whole thing. It's kind of based off Rollins, like, get in the van, let's go, right? Mm-hmm. And then we did a second one. And the second one, I, I did this totally sarcastic, nasty drawing of cops beating up hippies and dragging them to the to the van to the police van (laughs) and i just came across it online i don't have the board anymore but uh there's like there's like a broken protest sign on the ground that says free the weed and these hippies are getting maced and shit it's just (laughs) like because i I, i've always been like an anti-hippie guy i just don't dig that whole trip you know so Uh and i don't know who knows how well it's sold you know (laughs) <laughs> but at, th- at that period, you know, I, I was there from 95 to 98 and boards were so short run, like people don't even remember them, right? They the were, 90s, huh? 90s boards. Well, it was gnarly. Like all the kids knew, you know, the company set a bad precedent. Like every pro has a new graphic every month, right? Like this is how we're staying current and keeping it fresh. Well, the kids came to expect that. So you could only make two, three hundred of a board at a time, you know, ship them out to shops. And every month there was a turnover. Every pro had a graphic. And so when you're talking about three teams, like that's a lot of graphics. And that's yeah. just boards, right? So I yeah. probably did close to 300 board graphics in a three and a half year span. And that's just me. Todd was, you know, did an equal amount, if not more. So it was, it was insane. How is it working with like Mickey and Jim and those guys? Like what was, (laughs) is the atmosphere still pretty regiment? Like, are you getting in trouble if you're late or is it pretty loose or how does it work? Well, you know, I mean, obviously the overlords of everything was Fausto and Eric, right? And Uh Fausto and Eric were very rigid about things, but they, they respected if you kind of respected their rules, right? And I, and I always remember, like, I mean, I, I met Fausto back in the 80s when right before Thrasher dropped and he had handed me these thermal Thrasher stickers before the magazine even existed and said, it's coming, right? And so, like, I remembered him from way back. Um, but, you know, there, all, there were all these stories and these rumors about Fausto and Eric just being, like, Nazis, like, just, oh, if you step out of line one time, like, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get fired, you're going to get shit canned, Mickey might beat you up. You know, all this, and those guys weren't like that at all. Right? Yeah, but Mickey the, had this, such a fucking reputation as being the enforcer. It was insane. Yeah, well, Mick was a hard ass, you know, but he's a, he's he's a teddy bear. He's like this sweetheart guy, and he's really funny, right? But yeah, like like Mick's a dude. Like you'd just be walking over to get a cup of coffee, he'd walk up and just give you the gnarliest Charlie horse, you know, just punch you in the arm, like good morning, right? And that was just part of the deal. You know, so yeah, I mean, working there in that time, it's like, you know, dude, we had to punch a time card when you came in, right? And it was, it was this weird, like, what is this, the gulag? You know, it's a skateboard company, but no, we, we got these rules, you know, no health insurance, no, no heat, no air conditioning, <laughs> condemn building, you know, but what, you know, to take myself back to that time, it's like, I didn't care about any of that. I was like, I'm doing something I love with people I love that's connected to this thing that I've loved my whole life. Like, mm. how can how can this be bad? 
It seems so cool to me that they were in the industrial area too. It was just, it just made it so much cooler. Like walking up the steps to get there, you're like that first glimpse, there's the receptionist desk and you're just like, and then you get through the door and it's just like, okay, who's here? I remember like, fuck, Maria would be working. Were you there when Maria was there? Uh, I don't know if Maria was there. I know Feli was kind of our our front desk girl, Feli was okay. really awesome. She was there. Um, huh. And then it was, it was Kirk and it was Clint and then Tommy and Jim. And you did know, you and Clint I, always kind of have, did you guys ever get to be close or was it always a weird uh, vibe? I was never super tight with him. I, I you know, it, just started kinda, off on the wrong foot. <laughs> no, I don't, I wouldn't say the wrong foot. I think it was just a weird dynamic. I mean, he was like, he was from Visalia. You know, mm-hmm. and, and many, many years later, Tom Knox and I had a long conversation about Jeff Clint that kind of confirmed some stuff that I thought about him, you know, mm-hmm. rest in peace, Clint, bum that he's gone. But yeah, we never really got tight. So I just kind of, I was respectful. I was cool. I, you know, I worked with him and tried not to ruffle his feathers and stuff, but I always just kind of felt like, ah, dude's, you know, he's, he's carrying this tiny grudge because... I flamed out on him, you know, mm-hmm. and it was, it could have been anybody could have been any person that got in my way. It just happened to be him. And so we just sort of ended up colliding later in life. Right. Um, but, but he was cool. Like Jeff was a super talented dude. He, he was into music. He was into all this shit. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that he was into some other things that ended up taking his life, you know? Yeah. He was kind of the one dude that I never really got to know. Um, and like, I always from afar, like, yeah, the music he did for 8th Street and like all the influence he had with stereo and just everything. Yeah. Like he was a really important dude. And I just somehow never got to really know that dude. Yeah, yeah. He he was, I don't, I don't know that he was all that approachable. I mean, it, I guess it just kind of mattered how you encountered him the first time or what kind of relationship you built. And so... <laughs> I was, I was always super tight with Thebo, super tight with Tommy, all those guys, Ruben, you know, like those dudes, it was like, we were all kind of like brothers from a different mother, you know, during that span. And it was awesome. So, um, but crazy, crazy work environment, you know, I mean, the, the workload was insane. Uh, the energy of the place was insane. And then you got, you know, 8,000 different personalities coming in and out of the art room all the time and all the crazy shit that go, all the pranks and the just insane stuff, you know, I mean, you ever get a green day sighting? Uh, I, I think I did once when Jim's ramp was in the, the Adeline records warehouse uh-huh. after we moved it the third time. Um, I think I actually met those guys. I'm kind of, little bit hazy on that i mean but yeah like like dudes would come through for sure like that that he knew from music and stuff yeah like davy from afi was always coming through like jim's got ties to like all these dudes oh yeah totally well he was like he was like part of that gilman street scene yeah and and the punk scene for me it's like i never really got into the whole gilman thing and i think by the time gilman fired up like i in my mind punk was already dead Right? Mm. Like, cause I was going to the Mab and on Broadway and all that stuff, like at the end of the seventies and the early eighties and going to see the dead Kennedys everywhere, you know, and, and that part of punk that that shit fizzled out. Right. And I think what, what really spelled it out for me is like, you know, it's, I want to say 80, 88, 89 going to, 
the Keystone San Francisco and seeing Black Flag and Rollins comes out with long hair and no shirt and barefoot and dolphin jogging shorts all sweaty. And I was like, wait, what happened? The punk changed. <laughs> like something, something went wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think I was at that too. I was tripping, you know, and, the, and the there was black, all- uh, like silky short shorts. Yeah, the dolphin jogging shorts. Yeah, you know? it was like, what? What is this? It's like jock punk. I don't know. Uh. Um, and I and I just like my musical tastes were just broadening into all this other stuff. Like I got really into like Fishbone and all that stuff for a while. And then people were into Primus. Uh, now I can't figure out for the life of me why I ever liked Primus because I can't stand their music. But at some point I thought it was cool, you know, um, all that stuff. Mr. Bungle, you know, Faith. Oh, yeah, I saw Mr. Bungle. Mr. Bungle is fantastic. Mike Patton is is incredible. He's such a weird dude. Yeah, um, Faith No got, More singer, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he took over for the old singer who I guess was a drug addict and they couldn't stand him anymore. And so when they got Mike Patton, that's when that's when Faith No More became like an international thing. Like they became rock stars, right? Mm. Um, I was in London in 1990 and I actually saw him play at the Brixton Academy, which was just nuts. Um, a year later, I'm back in the States and they put out the exact concert I was at on a VHS. So I have my ticket in the, in the video, the VHS. That's box amazing. F and M show in London that I was at. So did you go to the farm? I did. And I went to tool and die. I mean, my memories of that stuff, like I was really young. So I think I might've gone once or twice to each of those places. Um, went to target video once when they used to do all that stuff. The varsity new varsity theater that was yeah. like that was like the big hangout right yeah, like yeah. all the punks and that skate. was my first punk show varsity yeah that was Me and that Fletch was, and the redwood city crew yeah so so i went to shows there um first time i ever took lsd was at that theater no um, way. and it was the first time i had ever seen pink floyd the wall so it's like yeah oh, i'm gonna do these two things together in this <laughs> one shot like i'm gonna drop acid for the first time and i'm gonna see pink floyd the wall for the first time Wow. And you know, I seriously started coming up right in the middle of the vacuum scene at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a crazy experience, right? And, uh. and I, I dropped acid at a uh, the suicidal show that was there when Suicidal Tennessee's played there. Yeah, I was at that for sure. Yeah, so I was just frying my brains out. They might have played with aggression or ill repute or somebody. Yeah, something like that. It was a sick show. Like, I wish I had the flyers still from all that stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm sure we could find them online. There's, you know, people have put so much stuff on the internet now. Like, you can go back and and do this sort of like, uh, wow, I forgot I did this when I was a kid, right? Like, I, I, you know, I saw The Clash play a couple of times in the Bay Area, and that was just epic. And it's like, I have this big book about the clash and it has all the show listings for every year like all the shows they played and i'm like yeah i was there i was there i was there that's amazing i never saw the clash bummed on that they were insane um they played they opened for the who at oakland coliseum one of the shows i went to right and so we go and we're like fuck yeah dude we're gonna see the clash and as soon as the clash was done we left oh okay so in retrospect as an adult i'm thinking like wow so i could have seen the who and i blew them off <laughs> like i was so punk i was Damn. gonna leave before these hippies got on stage see, i saw the who but i didn't see the clash i would i would trade that yeah there was one of the Clash shows was insane it was at san francisco civic and the opening bands were los lobos who are just 
incredible musically, like, but so different. And the bangles, which is like the most awful thing ever, right? The walk like an Egyptian, the the girl band. And dude, those poor women, they got on stage, they start playing to this, you know, this theater full of all these punks and whatever. People are spitting on them, throwing ice and shoes at them and stuff. They didn't even finish their set, right? It's like, that's how angry and, you know, like, that's how punk we are. We're going to run you out of here kind of thing. Like, it, it was awful, you know. But back then, that shit happened. It just was that way. You know? Right. Na- nowadays, you'd be like, get taken off to jail and whatever. You're, you're a horrible person. You're canceled, whatever. You know, it's just, it was a different time, right? And it wasn't any better. It, it doesn't make it right. It was just the way it was. Right? Yeah. What what happened at Deluxe? How long did you work there? And then why did you leave and where did you go? Well, so I was there like three and a half years. I started there in 95. And in 98, I was, you know, I asked Clint for a raise at one point, you know, and um, it was kind of, dude, it was kind of gnarly. He's like, whoa, you take a lot of smoke breaks, bro. I was like, yeah, because I smoke, but shit, dude, I, I bust. Like, I do my work. I'm not, you know, I'm ahead of time on stuff. I'm I'm taking stuff home with me, you know, and you don't pay overtime. Like, come on, man. Like, and, and he, he made some, like, oh, we'll give you like a 25 cents an hour raise. And I was like, okay, well. And I knew that Todd was, he was just cemented in as the art director, right? So I, I didn't see like him bailing out anytime soon for any sort of advancement for me which is not really what I was about, but I was thinking like, where does this go? You know, I'm like, am I going to be here in 10 years doing the same thing for the same money? And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to try something different. So sat down, I had a big heart to heart with Thibaut. And I said, look, dude, I, you know, I got to bail. I can't, can't do this. I love you guys. I love this gig. I love everything about it, but I'm going to do something else different with my life. Like I just, I think I kind of burned out, you know, and like in that, in that time period, like Phil passed away you know, there were, there were a lot of these weird gnarly things that went on that just kind of made it like, I think I need to get away, you know? So, uh, moved to Los Angeles. You know? That's the same year filled at 98. Yep. Yep. So oh, I packed it up, moved to LA, um, and just was kind of working different jobs. Like I worked in a framing store for a while and I was doing all these things and looking around. And, and then finally I got, um, got hired at 20th Century Fox to do licensing art. Yeah, you were doing like some of the Marvel shit or something, right? I worked on Simpsons, Futurama, Sons of Anarchy, like every Fox property. And and it's basically called the Consumer Products Division. So you generate all this art for uh, coffee mugs and backpacks and sheet sets. And uh, you, dude, every product under the sun, you know, it's licensing, right? so yeah, I was I was doing that, and they sort of brought me in because they wanted somebody from a sort of a more subculture background to give it some teeth, you know. Um, so there was a lot of like skateboard-oriented Bart Simpson stuff that I did, and just you know, it was, was kind of like doing more edgy style artwork for these licensing programs, and it, and it was super rad gig, you know. I made really good money, I was able to to buy a house, you know. Um, and did that for a long time. And, you know, it's funny, like I, at one point I created a, a vintage, like a retro skate style guide for Bart Simpson. And so I was riffing on all these old eighties skate graphics. Right. Um, and I, and I made all this stuff and I was like, you know, this, this is perfect for like, 
guys like me who have grown up and now they have kids and they, you know, they, they want to relate to their youth through these, through these graphics or whatever, these parodies, um, and stick it on their kids. Right. And I made all this stuff and, and nobody was into it. They, they didn't get it cause they weren't skateboarders, you know? So it all got filed away. And then after I left my gig there, somebody dug it up and they did that whole NHS Simpsons licensing deal. So the worst graphics in the world, I'm sort of responsible for. You just influenced somebody. <laughs> um, you know, I didn't draw those actual graphics, but all the concepts for it, like, you know, the Homer Simpson arm with the donut, like the Roscoff target. You know, yeah. Shit that I, I created, right? Oh, damn. Um, and I just, I, I told them, you know, early on when I first started working there, they, they make these shitty Chinese skateboards right out in the world that they brand with simpsons shit right and when i worked on this guide i told him i said you know listen you guys should never be near the real skateboard industry with this stuff like let's make the distinction right now there's toys and there's skateboards and right like, you guys are doing licensing for toys not skateboards right well that all that script got flipped once i left right um and me sitting there having to stomach that was just gross you know, like, no, like, this is terrible. This is not what skateboarding is supposed to be and not what graphics are supposed to be. Uh, and I'm partially responsible, you know, but I've been responsible for other bad stuff. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, dude, I was the first person to sell curb wax. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Gary and I, when we worked at the shop in PA, there was a Togo's down the street, right? We were big Togo sandwich guys. So we're like sitting there and one day it just occurred to me like, you know, these kids are, kids are showing up at a curb with a candle or something trying to wax us. Let's, uh, let's like, let's create a marketing plan and sell curb wax. Right. So I went to the grocery store. I bought all the diamond paraffin blocks. We individually packaged them. We made this rad little graphic card, you know, stapled it. And we sent one to the mag to Thrasher, like for product control, which Phelps used to do. Right. Well, it's written up in Thrasher. The curb <laughs> wax. Yikes, curb wax. Yikes. That's <laughs> what we called it. And it was rad, dude. We, we sold it to kids at the shop and we'd be like, okay, you can use it here and you can use it here, but don't go to that curb. Don't go to that. Don't go to any of these places and use that shit. Okay. Because those curbs are good. You, you know, it yeah. was all like, you know, go ruin the curb in front of your mom's house. Right. Oh, but yeah, we, as far as I know, we were the first people to actually market curb wax. <laughs> No way. <laughs> Damn, talk about the G-Rails. Were you there for the uh, evolution of it? Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, Gary, <clears throat> you know, obviously back then in the skate shop, you had 20 different kinds of rails, and they were all totally overpriced for these what they were, which was basically just strips of extruded plastic or nylon. Ugly sticks. And, and Gary <laughs> has always been about, like, efficiency and performance and all these things. So... He thought like, man, I'm going to go do all the research and I'm going to find the, the perfect material to make rails out of that will slide the best, the last longest, everything. And I'm going to make rails, right? So he went and did all this research. And it's this stuff called UHMW plastic. It's non-extruded. It's actually pressed. It's super high density. It's super slick. And he designed those rails. And so the first ones he made were they didn't have the bulge. They were just kind of, I, I think they might have a slight bulge towards the back. Cause you always, back then you always board slid back towards your back truck. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was riding them and I was burning through them pretty quick. Cause I was the board slide guy. And, uh, and then he started making the, the gribs, the G ribs with the really fat back by the, the two back holes. You know, it was like, like wide and then it would come in and narrow. 
And was the thinking on that just to make them lighter than just having a whole wide uh, No, no, one? they were, so they were double width by your back truck where you did most of the sliding, meaning they'd last longer. You know? Okay. And then they were narrower up front where you'd grab, so they still worked as a functional grab rail as well as a slide rail. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had them all machined and stuff and they were super good, you know, like, like nowadays you, you could get on those things. I mean, you, you could get cooking somewhere and, and not burn through them. They really were that good. Whereas most of the rails, like even the Powell ones were, were crap. You could burn through them in you know, a couple of days if you were really going after it. So yeah. And that was, that was his little thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and, okay. they, and they were rad. Yeah. They were heavy as shit double width in the back like yeah it's you know, oh i basically have three and a half rails on my board yeah it was it made your board pretty heavy I, remember, I don't think i ever even used them i just remember seeing them all the time yeah but that uh, wasn't you know that was in the gimmick time right like like you could get away with it like oh the cell block three and rip grip rip and, grip you know, yeah I, I i just remember working in the shop like at christmas time kids would come in to get their christmas completes and you know, it's Palo Alto kids got money and the parents are like, oh yeah, whatever it costs, you know. And these kids that weren't like us, they were just kids that wanted a skateboard. They come in and of course it was, Pal Peralta was the shit. So they wanted a Powell board and they wanted trackers with copers and they wanted every piece of plastic you could possibly put. They wanted the tailbone. They wanted lapper. the short ribs. They wanted the short ribs. They wanted lappers on both ends. They wanted rails. They wanted a nose bone and a, and a nose, whatever the, the grab rail was inside. I mean, dude, you're setting up a board that weighs like 35 pounds, right? The bird. But to us, it's like, you know, hey, this is our job. This is what pays our paycheck. So yeah, that's it. what you want, you know? Oh, oh, you want a custom grip tape job, kid? Yeah flip me an extra 10 bucks i'll do that for you too you know so we were all into like oh artisanal sticker tape jobs and shit like for sure uh, for a little extra we'll hook you up right we'll make your board look like you actually know what you're doing dude we you would know? buy the uh rip grip and then overlap it so it was like double and triple and like yep. you're just it was like adding so much shit to your board back then yeah. and yeah. then paint pens came out and it was like grip tape art and yeah i was telling you um i think i told you I, i've been going through all my old height tapes and stuff and trying to digitize them so they'll last forever and uh i got this one because uh joe rocker the spine ramp you and johnny dagger colliding dude it's oh, so raw man. i was like because you're like six four and johnny's like 85 pounds <laughs> uh, like, johnny Fair. yeah joe freitas he had that little little spine ramp with the crazy extension and stuff that was our first uh experience with spine and it was just like oh man it was so fun super rad right yeah yeah I, it was funny because i used to go um skate the kennedy warehouse in san jose way back in the 80s it's like the first place i met grosso actually way back mm. um and they had that spine ramp that was i want to say it was about six and a half seven feet tall yeah and that spine was like real business like okay like you had to, you had to learn on that so joe's spine was just like oh dude i'll just i'll just fling a whatever wing ding on here yeah. and just ride away because it's nothing right you Fuck. know um but yeah you know like i i realized later that like riding little stuff like that that seems so easy and whatever it's like you get way more hurt on little stuff than big stuff right it's true and that's kind of always been my experience it's like i'm a big dude like yeah um, especially being a big dude when yeah. i hit the ground it's like 
I'm going to hurt the ground as much as it's going to hurt me, I think. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So when you moved to L.A., you did the, what what city were you in? So you like basically like mid city L.A., like near Culver City, um, not total west side, not over by Santa Monica and all that, but just kind of centralized about about six miles from Venice Beach. Was there a heavy acclimation for you, like coming from NorCal and living down there, dealing with the traffic and just all the bozos like, you know, I hate L.A. So give me some give me some dirt on what was the fucking shitty. Actually, I, 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 the, the idea of um, us all being from NorCal and having this opinion of of Southern California, like a oh, fucked smog traffic, shitty people. The water. It wasn't really well, like that, that for me. I mean, I, I, I but I, dude, I, I would go, you know, 10 years in, I'd be driving around going, well, how did I get here? Like, it's weird, right? But I didn't experience any of that sort of fantasy shit that we all have being from NorCal about how shitty LA is, <laughs> aside from the fact that it's this huge place and there's way too many people. You know, yeah, it and, takes five hours to get to the next exit. Yeah, but I sort of realized like, wow, like, okay, LA is overpopulated. It's this huge place. It's got all these problems. But these people have had time to make peace with it. Whereas the Bay Area, because it grew so fast and all these people just showed up out of nowhere, like, dude, nobody's made their peace with it. I think people are angrier and gnarlier up there. This is the year of the empathy. Get it. Get your empathy back. But I didn't really have too much of that weird thing. I, I, I dug the weather. You know, mm. I'm like, fuck, it never rains. It's always like mellow temperature. You can yeah. skate almost every single There's day. There's tons of, the of shit to skate, yeah. Nobody walks in LA. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, at, at this point, like now, it's just like skateboarding is kind of like I didn't have any connections when I first moved to LA. I didn't know anybody. It was kind of like the skate park thing hadn't really kicked off yet with all the municipal parks. It was just kind of out there. Um, right down the street from my place, there was the Culver City original park, which was just a asphalt slab with a bunch of metal ramps on it. And I'd go over there and dick around. And then I found out that they were going to build a legit park there. Right. And um, so I was like, oh, I got to get in on this and get involved. Right. Because I, I was going to all the city council meetings for Greer way back in Palo Alto, you know, mm -hmm. in the 80s. Like we were, please build us a skate park. You know, you, you want to chase us out from everywhere. Like give us a place to go. So I got involved in the Culver City project. And that was a three and a half year stint of, oh damn, you know, battling over what and what. And then Mike McIntyre, who had actually created site design that that company in Arizona that built parks, he was the, he was the designer of the park. So from page mill. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. So he shows up at one of the meetings and it's like, Whoa, no way. I haven't seen this dude. in <laughs> I don't know how long, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and we sat down and, the, and we were talking about the budget they had for this park and, and the space and everything. And I was like, I knew right off. I'm like, okay, this plan and this amount of money don't fit you can't build that with this. So why don't we pare it down and change it, build a really good pool, strip away this and that, and just make a park that everybody's going to like. Mm. Um, but in the meantime, like that, that was all in a planning phase and design phase. And they built uh, the Glendale park, which is out in the Valley. Um, and that park is something that Ben Schroeder designed. And it's just this freaky ass park. And I went out there when it first opened and went, yeah, I think I need to like start getting back into, I'm going to go get some pads and a helmet and uh, start skating like legit if I can, you know, mm. at this advanced age. Yeah. Uh, and then at that, right around that same time is when I discovered, you know, 
all this cool shit on the internet like Concrete Disciples, which was that website that uh, uh, Jeff Greenwood had originally started up in Portland, I think, as a zine, you know, way, way back. And then he turned it into the skate park directory site. And I met Ray Zimmerman. Um, I think one time I had taken a road trip down to Encinitas to go skate that park. And I met Ray and MRZ kids. MRZ. Yeah. It's not <laughs> Mr. Z. It's Madison Ray Zimmerman. For anybody that doesn't know that. So people, he, he was always flaming out when people go, Hey, Mr. Z. It's like, Mr. No, Z. No. So he and I clicked and, and we had sort of the same pedigree. Like, uh, he worked at Lakewood center skate park way back in the seventies and he was on the Madrid team and he, he came up in that same era, you know? So we had a lot in common and we just started like hanging out and, um, we started like posting stuff on concrete disciples in the bulletin boards, like articles, like he'd shoot a bunch of photos from a session or whatever, someplace we went and I'd write all this crazy shit and we put it in there. And then Jeff eventually said like, Hey, you know, why don't you guys be partners on the site? Cause you're making all this content and, um, all these people are stoked on what you guys are doing. So we're like, yeah, okay. You know, we're in. Um, and that sort of kicked off that whole thing. And I think at, at one point at the height of it, um, we were actually pulling more page views per day than Thrasher. Whoa, slow it down. A lot of that had more to do with our bulletin boards and people tearing each other up like the wild west in there. And it's just like all these followers, you know, these people were just in there like, Oh, what's, what's the next thing that's going to be said? What's the next fight that's going to break out? Like, yeah. And, and, and quite honestly, it's a bunch of old dudes sitting in front of a keyboard going, I am going to vibe the living shit out of you. And I'm going to fucking cut you up motherfucker. Like that was the way it was. Right. And it was just crazy, but we, we, we'd have events, you know, we'd have these death races or we'd have these, these jams, these like Sunday sermons. We had all these different events that we just set up and just tell people like, Hey, come on out, skate with us. Right. And there were people, all these seventies dudes coming out of the woodwork, young, you know, guys bringing their young kids. And there was this whole sort of community around that, that website and the shit that we were doing. Right. Um, and that's sort of how I met Grasso again and Lance again and John Lucero subsequently and all these people that, you know, they were, they were dudes that are like Godhead, you know, when I was young. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that, it, it was just like making all these connections, you know. We started going to trade shows. Um, we started, like, showing up at the Vans pool party, all these things to cover it for our website. And, um, yeah, I, I you know, I, got, I ended up getting hired to write all the coverage for Vans for the pool party for a couple of years. And just it was just all this, like, oh, now I'm a media guy, right? <laughs> like, I'm a writer, I guess. I feel like that's when we reconnected. I think I yeah. saw you for the first time in a long time at a, at a combi contest or something. Yeah, yeah, we crossed. I was passes. like, "What? What are you doing?" Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a funny thing, dude. When you're when you're in it, like you are, like I am. It's like you're lifer, man. I mean, it's like you're gonna keep bubbling up somewhere. Somebody's gonna be like, "Whoa, what?" Like you're still around. Yeah. yeah I mean, Where do you think I was gonna go? Right. I mean, I, I, I love skateboarding so much. It's like, how do you walk away from it? It's kind of all I know. It's like, yeah. I have no choice. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think like for me personally, it was like, I, I love it so much. I wanted to have this continued involvement in, in whatever capacity, whether I was writing about it, covering it in the media, doing graphics work, um, what have you, you know, going to events and just getting stoked on all the kids. Get stoked yeah. on the young dudes and just being like, 
wow, you know, like some of you guys are carrying the torch proper, right? And being hyped on that. So yeah, it just, uh, so it's, it's in your blood, right? You know? For sure. And you'll go in the box and you'll be like, fuck, I could probably get a grind right now. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Hey, let me take a quick piss break. I'll be right yeah, back. Sure. Sure, cool. uh, while I'm gone, I'm going to do a little tribute to uh, my friend's Hightower. I got uh, I finally found the sticker and it's going up Rad. on the wall and I am the wall ride. Cool. I'll take a little break too. I'll see you in a minute. All right, kids, check this out. We got a new book called Trim Camp from AE Gold. Trim Camp is a tall tale about a group of pro skateboarders who decided to trim weed. From a pool skating orgy to a kung fu challenge, the drama never stops. Even the super trooper escapade couldn't dampen the stoke of playing a poker tournament on acid. This was one for the record books. Definitely a best read when you're hella high. Ryan Clement said he learned a lot about how the weed world works from reading this book. Mickey Reyes said he gave his copy to Cardiel. Joey Tershay exclaimed, lies, all fucking lies. Imagine having the munchies of reading. That's right, kids. Trim camp. Get your copy of Trim Camp today. Artwork by Connor Getzlaff. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. This is Sammy Town from Fang, and you're listening to Talking Schmidt. Yeah, we got our good friends at Apex Recovery. Really good for your back and your sore muscles. I like to do it on my neck. <laughs> I need one of those, the gun. Yeah, so good. I'm lucky. I actually have remained pretty flexible and not terribly broken aside from a bunch of metal rods in my body. So, but yeah, that looks like a good one. I got arthritis. It's just the winters uh, are so much harder than the summers, especially brutal. up here. Need to move to Florida or something, right? Hawaii. <laughs> wherever, the, wherever the snowbird people go. I'm going to Hawaii. If I ever yeah. can pull it, I'll, uh, I'll clean up Chris Sen's tattoo parlor for him or something. I don't know. There you go. Go, <laughs> go hang out with Ardo. He might have a spare room. Oh, yeah. That's pretty <laughs> nice over there, too. I'm assuming you guys got some fucking fights or something with people about like your opinionated columns and stuff, rubbing people uh, the wrong way. Uh, I think the only people that got rubbed the wrong way were the people that we intended to rub the wrong way. <laughs> but would really. they call you out on it or no? Uh, never to my face, you huh. know? Um, so, so basically, you know, we were, we were bringing our dogma into it. Like we're old guys, we skate backyard pools. We're into transition and, and all this stuff. Like, you know, yeah, street rules the world. Everything is street oriented, but that's not us, you know? And we were never militant about that. It's just, Hey, this is what we're into. Right. Um, and so what would happen was I, I tried to sort of adopt this idea of, I want to write like Hunter Thompson and Craig Stesick combined into one and be very like guerrilla gonzo journalist about it, but use the sort of captioning from big brother, 
like the idea of just writing these horrid captions for photos like that are that are just demeaning or weird or whatever and just just trying to be creative you know like 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 let's 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 resurrect the mythology the way stesic did it with the dogtown guys but but modernize it and make it this hardcore like yeah fuck you you know like this is what we're about you don't like it we don't care mm-hmm. you know so i mean it stirred up some stuff and i i don't know like i I think I had five or six different fake identities on the bulletin boards that I'd use to specifically go in there and stir shit up, right? To get people talking because the more, the more friction, the more conflict there was, the more traffic there was. So we thought like, oh, this is the way, right? This was a precursor to the slot message boards. <laughs> well, yeah. I want to say the slot message boards already existed, but they hadn't become I what built they are. Them. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I mean God but, damn it! Why did I do that? <laughs> you know, see, we've all done bad things, right? I, I certainly have my little shameful things. Anyway, uh, yeah, but you, you know, that's the thing. You you create a platform, and the monsters come in the back door and turn it into something else. It's, it's the like, Isaac Asimov book, I Robot. Yep. Y- you build the robot, and then the robot kills you. And I'm like, Oscar La Vista, baby. Something to that effect. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah, we took a, we took sort of a confrontational stance about it, but it was, it was all meant in fun. Like I'm, I operate on humor. Humor's my, my defense mechanism against everything shitty in the world. And it's like, if I can find some funny aspect of even the most horrible thing, then I'm like, okay, I'm not crazy. I, I can get through my day. Right. So yeah. And I even had some weird little conflicts with Phelps, you know, when we were doing that because he, I, I've known Jake Phelps since 1983, right? When he first came to, to SF, this like weird longboard Jack's team wannabe sort of cat. Like you, you can ask BK about all this. We had a really funny conversation about it, but Jake showed up and um, he was just a weirdo, right? And I never would have thought like that guy who I found passed out on the flat bottom at the HP ramp in 90, 1983 or 1984 or whatever it was, would be the editor of Thrasher, like mm-hmm. for a long time. And if I remember correctly, Phil was supposed to take that job, right? Yeah, they were grooming him. And and then, you know, s- tragically, he, he passed away and then we're stuck with Phelps. And Phelps, I always had a love-hate relationship with that guy. It was kind of like I, his encyclopedic knowledge of skateboarding and magazines and everything going back. It was like, dude, like your mind's like a steel trap. It's awesome. But he dicked out hard on a lot of people, you know? And I think sometimes it was the intention and the, and the motivation was right. Like, it's like, we've always been about heckling people to try to push them. Right. Like, like I'm going to make fun of you. I'm going to give you shit because I want to see you make that tired of seeing you bail that, you know, that, that mentality. And that's a NorCal. That's a hardcore thing. Right. Um, but, but Phelps was just funny. Like he, you know, dude, you knew him well, right? Like he had that ability. He could just walk up and just drop a sentence on you. And you're like, dude, that kind of hurt. Like that, that's, I feel like that's all he f- practiced the night before or something. Like, I don't know <laughs> if he even practiced, but it was like every time it was the showstopper right out of the gates. Yeah. So we, so one of the years at the pool party, he walked up to me. We're sit, I was sitting with Grosso and a couple of people on the deck and just, I had my cooler out there and we're just kind of waiting for the day to get started. And he just, he walked up and, and said something like, wow, it must really suck to be from Palo Alto. 
And I, and I was, what the, and I just looked at him and I said, yeah, dude, but it's not as bad as Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he kind of like, whoa, he's weird. And then later that night in the bar after the contest and everything, everybody's in there getting liquored up and he walked up and I still had my wristband on. He's like, fuck you wearing that thing for? You don't need that in here. Contest is over. You know? And I was like, Jesus Christ, man, why, why are you in my shit, Jake? You know? So the next day I took the wristband and I wrote a note and I basically said like, Hey Jake, you know, obviously you're a much more important person than I am. You probably need this wristband more than me. And I stapled the wristband to the piece of paper and I mailed it to Thrasher, you know? And after that, he never gave me flack. Like it was like, I don't know, maybe he understood that was my way of saying like, dude, I can play this game to the end of time. If you really want to trade barbs, like let's go, bro. That's all he wanted. The minute that you like stood up for yourself, that's when he respected you. And it was, it was good. If you were a coward to it, it would just, it was the bully system kind of. Yeah. I think it just kind of took me by surprise because it's like, I never really knew him that well. And, you know, my couple of encounters with him when I worked at Deluxe, he was like a little more placid than that. I mean, he probably chucked a few things at me back then that I kind of laughed off. But and I think that's a rad thing about that guy that he he motivated people to rise to a certain occasion through that. You know, is it the most positive, productive way to get people to do that? Maybe not, but it worked, you know. Yeah, lighten the fire. Yeah. Yep. If it wasn't lit, it was burnt down. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, you, you think about what that energy translates into, like all the hell ride trips and all the things that that dude's responsible for. Like mm-hmm. skateboarding wouldn't be as cool as it is without those contributions. So, yeah, you know, when I say I have a love hate with the guy, it's like, yeah, that's true. But like, I totally respect like his shit, you know, and didn't agree with him all the time for sure. totally yeah i mean there's no it's undeniable though like you have to respect like all the like you said it was insane just like oh yeah october 94 you're just like huh yeah (laughs) yeah same day kennedy got shot like you would always have a reference to mm -hmm, like it was mm -hmm. like first mtv awards oh thrasher we've been here longer than mtv like just shit like that was just like (laughs) wow how'd he get all this shit yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind of like, I mean, I, I don't have the eidetic memory that that guy had, but you know, the old skateboarder magazines of the seventies, that stuff is just burned into my brain, you know, yeah. the, the Dogtown articles, certain photos that I can, I close my eyes. I can see the photo as if I'm looking at the page. Yeah, man. I mean, and, and just, so yeah, the, the concrete disciples thing, I mean, we, we did that and we were just doing our thing. And then um, it all just kind of came screeching to a halt. Like, you know, our partner was just like bumming on us because I think he felt like me and, and Ray had sort of become the face of it, you know, like it wasn't really about him and his zine and his, his skate park directory anymore. It was about us throwing atomic bombs at everybody and writing these articles, you know? Uh Um, and so that all just sort of like fell apart. He just didn't want us to be part of it anymore. Um, and so we tried to launch a di- digital magazine, you know, um, that defect magazine that we put out one, one issue through the app store. It was a nightmare. We spent all this money doing it. <laughs> Super cool interactive thing. And um, uh, the following 
I guess like two months later, Skateboarder went to their digital version and all the advertisers that had pledged to back us decided to advertise in Skateboarder. So we couldn't effectively were broke. We couldn't afford to put it out. So we did one issue and it was cool, but. Is it still online? Um, no, it's long gone because the app store, you know, keeps changing and we're, we didn't keep paying the, the fees for it to be up there or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause everything's like, everything's money, you know, yeah. it's like, the whole Adobe package was like, oh, you got to pay this much and then you got to pay this much if you want to publish out and then you have to charge this much and we get 30% and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, Um, we didn't really care about any of that. We thought we were doing something really groundbreaking and and bitching and different, you know, figuring like, oh, everything's going digital. This is the technological age now. Um, I think we were too early, you know, is what really happened. So, Whatever, I don't regret it. It was I, I learned a lot of shit that I wouldn't have known before that. Um, and I was uh, the only thing I was bummed about is we couldn't keep it going. From there, it's like that stuff led to uh, Ray and I were covering street league events for California no State Parks. Yeah, I didn't and, know that. Um, yeah, for a couple of years, they they hired me and Ray to like fly around the country to go to the street league events, and we'd get there days before the event. He would photograph the course builds and everything, and I would write all this stuff about it. And then we'd be there to cover the event, like you know, regular media coverage, but all through the CA Skate Park site, right? So one of the ones we went to was New Jersey, and it was like one of the craziest things. It was Hurricane Irene, and we're there. Oh, uh, I remember this. Uh-huh. So we're all holed up in this hotel in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and there's hundred mile an hour winds and there's sideways rain, raindrops like the size of a quarter, all this stuff. And, and meanwhile, you know, in the hotel, like the whole Sheckler family and all the street dudes are all in there just getting shit faced drunk in the bar, everybody's partying, whatever, you know, and about one in the morning, the lights go out, right. Powers out. I mean, and, and Ray and I were sitting there thinking like, if this is a hurricane, this isn't that big a deal. I mean, it's windy. There's a lot of rain. It doesn't seem like much. Well, Dude, we wake up in the morning, <laughs> the power's still out in the hotel. It's all stuffy and crappy because the AC's not working. We go out and we decide to take a walk around the neighborhood in this little Elizabeth, New Jersey. Dude, it's flooded out. There's houses underwater. I, I mean, remember there's a, that. There's a cemetery that's halfway submerged. We're, we're, we're expecting bodies to be popping up out of the ground. Like, Didn't people I, have to go to a different state to fly out? Yeah, we, we drove all the way to Baltimore to yeah. get out. So. So basically, you know, the, the funniest part of that whole thing is like, we, we go out, we take this walk and Ray shoot some photos of all the carnage and stuff. We're just like, wow, this is what a hurricane is. This was gnarly. Like, uh, you know, I, I mean, I like earthquakes and shit. They're, they, they happen, they're over and you pick up the broken glass. It's done. This is like days of shit. We go back to the hotel and Duncan comes out. And he's like, hey, you know, Duncan's just like always like bouncing around, fucked up. And he's like, and he's like, hey, hey, you guys hungry? And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls bacon out of his pocket. And he's like, guys, I got some bacon. You want some bacon? And it's just like, whoa, Duncan, what the pocket, <laughs> pocket bacon in a hurricane? What? Like, I mean, we just cracked up. Like, there's so many funny things that happen, you know. But that was a crazy one. So we, we had this rental car from California Skate Parks and we're like, dude, there's no flights in and out of New York, New Jersey, like all the airports are closed, we're, but we're fucked, right? Uh-huh. So we jump in this rental car and we, we, we reroute our flight out of Baltimore and it's like three and a half, four hour drive or whatever. So we, we take off down these highways, we're blowing through all the, the, the toll, toll things, the turnpikes or whatever. 
we get to Baltimore, we dump this one dude off the airport. And then Ray and I go, dude, we got to go skate lands down, right? 70s park. It's here somewhere, you know? So we start mapping it out. We figure out where it is. We, we roll up. Sure enough, there it is. Lands down skate park. Right. And it's yeah. horrible, but it's so rad. Yeah. So we went there on skate off. rock. It was like probably a half hour in and out. Right. Like- right. Right. And, uh, and to me, it's like, oh, I'm a little kid again. Like I'm back right back where I was in 76. It's this crappy cement park that like is totally unrideable, but we're going to ride it. Uh-huh. So we all fenced off. We found a hole in the fence. We went in, we skated it. Ray's got a photo of me doing a frontside grind there that looks like Ed Natalin out of a 1975 <laughs> skateboarder. I mean, just funny shit, right? Um, and then we got our flight out, but, but it was rad. Like in that trip, like we went to Pier 62 and skated that pool in New York. We skated lands down and that was just total like the, the the perks of having this kooky job working for this kooky skate park company doing Dude. this event. You know? Did you guys feel like fish out of water at those things? I mean street um, uh, street league is not a fun contest to to be at only only from the perspective that it was the first time that I realized like skateboarding has really changed and all these people are coming in making a living off of it that aren't us like the the weird hanger on video guys and people that have uh, polishing rob deerdeck shoes or whatever the hell like this armada of people that you're like okay you're not one of us or maybe it's that we're not one of you like we've been we've been pushed out and i think the saving grace was you know, some of the skaters like Raymond Detta and some of these dudes that were, were on these tours at these events are like the most down to earth, righteous, badass skateboarders. You know, they're just, they're like us. It's like to the bone, they're skateboarders. Right. Yeah. And the only reason they're there is because they were invited to be there and they're getting paid. Right. right. And you know, uh, their real skateboarding life mm-hmm. exists far from this arena. You know, the stuff that they do is way rather than the shit they're going to do here. Um, this is entertainment. Right. right. So, yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that feeling, but it was, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a skateboard fan, you know, I'm going to get stoked on lame shit too. If it's skateboarding, yeah. I mean, not as much, but yeah. yeah. All right. And what year was that around that you're doing? Oh this? man, probably like 2000, 2009, 2010. Okay. I'm trying then- to think the exact time, like. Oh, no, maybe it was later. Maybe it was like 2013, 2014. Yeah. That's right when Instagram starts, 2012. Yep, yep. And my first uh, Instagram post, which I'm now no longer doing anything with, uh, was from a street league event in Arizona. (laughs) As Black Project? Yeah, some sunrise in the Arizona desert outside our hotel, hotel we were waiting to get into. We drove out there and... uh, that was my first Instagram post. Where did Black Project come from? Okay, that was just a name that I uh, like. I was I've always been fascinated with like UFOs and and black projects like secret technology, the government, all that stuff, the skunk works or whatever. Um, and I used to use it as sort of like a, a brand of my graphic design illustration work, like even prior to Deluxe. So, mm-hmm. and then I just sort of a, adapted it to use as my pen name for everything you know with the articles on cd and and then into social media 
which let's talk a little bit about Instagram. So you were pretty much there from the beginning and just recently you've terminated. Did you leave the account up though? Or the account's still there. It's still open. Um, I can't lie. I, I do go in periodically to check direct messages because I offered to people, um, listen, if you, if you want to continue a dialogue with me outside of this venue, I'm stoked. DM me. I'll, I'll send you my email. In some cases, I'll send you my phone number, you know, because I, I have connected with some really rad people through being on Instagram. Sure. What was like your highlight of Instagram? What was some of the like glory days where it was like fun and funny or just like seeing cool imagery or what? Oh, dude, the first, the first five years I was on it. The first five years I was on it, um, it was realizing like, wow, like it, it's this wide open platform where people have all this freedom to just show and say and and, and, and do all these things. And it, it was, some of it was irreverent, but a lot of it was like people sharing their lives in a way that was these little bite-sized chunks and based on photos or videos, which I'm much more of an image I relate to images way more than text, right? Mm. And and I had blown off Facebook. Dude, it's been over 10 years since I was on Facebook because I just was so, I don't want to see pictures of your dinner. I don't want to listen to your politics. And, you know, it's like, the only reason I was on there is, is to have a connection to people for the website that we were doing. Okay. So once that ended, I bailed on that. And Instagram was in the first five years or so. I mean, it was like, it was cool. It's like, hashtags you could go search stuff and find all this cool interesting shit you didn't know about before you wanted to know more about um and the skateboarders were hitting it hard you know and and i mean it's an international phenomenon right so i'm seeing these cats i follow in japan doing all these diy things i'm super stoked on i'm seeing kids skating all over the place all these different places you know and it just it was rad it was like wow it's like now we have our our own little connective device right that we're all sharing all the skateboarding shit, right? Um, but I was always kind of like, I, I get too distracted by my own thought process and I want to like make weird, bold statements about things that maybe people understand, maybe they don't. So my shit was all over the map. It wasn't just skateboarding. Like I wasn't trying to put myself out there as like, hey, I'm this guy and I'm part of skateboarding and this is why I'm on Instagram. It was like, I'm just going to throw random shit, right? Like, oh, this this just occurred to me. Like, you know, if you drop an egg, it'll break here fuck your Prius, whatever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, and then I, I, I sort of, I was, I was fluttering around like 1500 followers or whatever. And I was reading a lot of stuff about Instagram, like how to use it as a tool to reach more people, to potentially make money, to self-promote all these things, you know, which is what they, in theory, were trying to get people to do. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, I was looking at it. I'm going like, man, you know, I can post rad old skate photos. I can post my art. I can do all these things all day long. My, my follower count never changes. Right. And I don't know how many of these people are. I'm, I'm getting like a hundred likes on whatever. And it just didn't seem like I was doing it right. And that's when I launched the hundred worst things about skateboarding stuff. Like, and it was like, I think part of it was just this idea of like looking at the direction the skateboard industry was going in and the sort of, big fictions that a lot of companies put out there to kids, like, um, for example, like the collab lie, right? Which is all just licensing art from a third party that they're putting on a skateboard to sell you because the brand recognition works for the mainstream and they'll sell more skateboards. 
So it was all based in that. And I've always been sort of this sarcastic jerk. So I would go out and I'd just call BS on all these things. Well, my follower count went up to almost 10,000 in like two weeks. Right? And I'm like, oh, so the negativity thing works. Fuck. And um, I I mean, dude, I did all that stuff with love and with humor. And when I really stuck it to somebody like Steve Barra, who arguably deserves it to be stuck to him every chance you get, like I did it with a sense of humor. Like if this dude ever really got pissed and came at me, I'd be like, okay, look, dude, it's skateboarding, right? Like don't take yourself so seriously. We can all be friends. Have a laugh with me. Come on, man. You're, you're a public figure. You're going to be a target. And right. people have said way worse shit about you than I've ever said. <laughs> you know? But it, but dude, it, it, it turned into this thing where like suddenly I had so many people following me and commenting and all that. And I was like, wow, okay, I guess I'll just do that from time to time, you know? And it did detract from what I thought I was trying to do, which was just kind of like share cool stuff with people, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that was the highlight, you know, and then it just got to this place where I realized how much they were throttling people and starting to shut down what we would consider free speech, you know, even though it's a private platform, they can do whatever they want. Um, and just that limiting of how much of your audience sees what you're putting out there. When I found out it was 10% or less, I was like, why am I doing it? Right. Um, you know, if I have 8,000 people following me, I want 8,000 people to see what I post, not 800. It's called <laughs> algorithms. I know, but what, what is that? <laughs> it's just the idea that a, that, a, that a dude in Silicon Valley can sit there and be like, okay, this guy over here, like, he doesn't want to see this and he doesn't want to see that. And he's probably not interested in this according to what I think. So I'll let him see this, that, and the other thing. Well, screw you, dude. Like, I'll decide what I want to see. I think what they did, though, is they limited how many people you're going to see unless you pay money to boost your post. So it was a way to get you to increase revenue for them. Exactly. And see, once the revenue model comes into anything like skateboarding in general, uh, things get ruined. Things get broken. For example, Instagram, you remember when Instagram had a, a chronological feed? Okay. So you're seeing things in real time. Like if you're, you get on there and scroll Excellent. through, it's like totally. you're, you could just start where you left off. Right. So you could, you could put a flyer up there. Say you're having a, you're having a pool jam somewhere tomorrow. You could put up a flyer on a Thursday and say like, Hey, on Saturday we're, we're doing this thing and you know, come out, it's five bucks, skate the pool, whatever bands, you know, you could put that up and you could guarantee that people would see it on Thursday and Friday. And then on Saturday, all these people would be able to show up. Well, now you post something that's like, Three days later, somebody might see it. So if it's time sensitive, you're blown, you know? Um, so what is that? Is that to try to force people to use stories? I mean, uh, yeah, stories so became I- way more popular. But I'll tell you this too, something that kind of like pre goes back to what you're saying is uh, Facebook bought Instagram. I know that. Long so time the, ago. The, the, you left Facebook, you came to Instagram, then Facebook bought Instagram, and then you left Instagram. Right, right, you better right. leave this shit in here. Don't be telling this is negative or not. This is life. And there was, I remember like we were skating at Ardo's oh, several years ago. We were there and these guys showed up and they were talking about a new platform that was kind of more skate centric and they're trying to make it that was just like Instagram. And I can't for the life of me now remember the name of it, but I actually set up an account there and it was like 
there were a bunch of skate people on it and then it just went away. So I'm assuming like it got bought or crushed or whatever it was. I mean, they, they want a monopoly on the social media marketplace and they want to con tightly control that market to now dangerously uh, control opinion and dissenting opinion and free thought, right? And I think human beings aren't real smart. Like we don't learn from our mistakes. We don't have a lot of forethought and we certainly are able to be fooled into taking the bait for a larger trap, right? Like when Instagram started getting flooded with ads the first time around, everybody bitched, right? But then everybody stopped bitching and the ads got more and more, you know? You feel eyes like, oh, yeah, now they'll tolerate it, right? So then if we say, okay, well, now we're going to limit the, the opinions of people. We're going to limit the ideologies that we allow to be projected here. We're going to arbitrarily define our community guidelines as something we don't want you to be able to share with other people. We're talking about 1984 USSR Nazi Germany type behavior. Um, which is very frightening and I kind of don't want to participate in something that has any even slight earmarks of those types of things. Right? Mm. And I think, you know, the unfortunate part of that is that in order to have an honest discourse and involve everyone together, um, all opinions need to be heard, even if you don't agree with them. You know, I think what, I think we're moving into this very dangerous place now where, they want to crush any dissenting opinion, but the one that they project, you know? And so it's incumbent upon every individual to decide how much of that control structure they want to participate in. You know, I'm making this way more philosophical than it needs to no, be. I don't, where, where you're going is kind of like what I have a struggle with is the whole like cancel culture part of it, where it's like, it's really built up this fear in people that now people aren't really, in other words, I feel like a lot of people are, aren't saying what they really feel because they're scared mm -hmm. or they're not doing what they want to do because they're scared. And now you're, instead of like leading the pack, you're kind of in the pack, you know, right. like before we told you what's cool. Now we're listening to find out what you're hoping we're going to say or something. It's right. like, I don't know. It doesn't feel like the leader anymore. No, no, you're right. And I, I don't know for myself personally, and I haven't always been successful at this, but I've tried starting at a very early age to, not judge people based on political ideology or religious principles or conservative or liberal or, or the color of somebody's skin or where they can, any of that. Like I always tried to sort of look at people like, is this a good person? You know, like in my relationships with the people that I'm friends with and the people that I care about, like, you know, I don't care if you go to church. I don't care if you believe in some conservative ideology, liberal ideology. I don't care about any of that. If you're cool with me and you treat me like a human and, and we can love each other and care about each other and not have those things interfere with our relationship, I'm good with that. That's where I want to be. And I, I wish that was an easier place to get to. Um, and it's a hard place to get to, especially now because that's being influenced, right? 
to give a standing ovation for that. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's not, it doesn't make No, I'm on the same exact else. page. It's like, you know, is this guy cool? Yeah. And I think like we're, we're fortunate and, and almost sort of blindly blessed within skateboarding and that skateboarding was never a real exclusive thing with regards to gender, race, politics, any of that, right? Skateboarding was just this fun thing that we all discovered. And it was like, especially like in those dead times I was talking about, skateboarders are skateboarders, right? Like, I don't care where you come from. I don't care yeah. that you're blue. I don't care that you have a tail or, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter. You're down, you're stoked. I'm stoked. We're down, we're skating. This is, this is happening. And I think that um, it's always been that. That's always been there. And yeah, there have been the people that stood out as being more prejudiced and people have said bad things and done bad things at times. But I think we've been overall as a microcosm of society a little bit more evolved in that sense. And now I feel like we're in a place where maybe the idea of stepping over each other to virtue signal that fact we just continue to live it the way we've always lived it. And we learn about our peers and our friends and the other people in the world. And we're sensitive and we're considerate. And beyond that, it's like, hey, we're all skateboarders, man. Like, I think this idea, I think we've been operating under a system in this country or for a long time that's the divide and conquer theory, where between the government and the news media and corporations and whatever cabal of groups you want to lump into it, they want us to fight each other because if we're fighting each other and we're all, you know, tore up and going after each other, we don't have the time and the attention span to go after them. Right. You know, and that, and I think that's, it's a frustrating thing because I would love to have all the people in this country come together and be like, you know what, at the end of the day, we're getting screwed by the government. We're getting screwed by social media. We're getting screwed by the news media. We're getting screwed by these corporations. We need to change that as a group together, not we need to fight each other and never change that. So, yeah. I mean, this is, this is heavy crap, right? You know, and, and I'm sure a lot of people listen to me say that and just be like, dude, you're, you don't understand anything. You're just old. You, so somebody called me a boomer on Instagram. I'm like, Oh, okay, I'm not even a boomer. I'm Gen X, bro. You dick. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pre-boomer. And I think there's a, I, dude, I, I don't know. I think it's being influenced by social media and the news media and, and the sort of vitriolic stuff that we've been being fed for so long that it's uh, somebody, somebody made the analogy. They, they were talking about the jar of ants with the red ants and the black ants. You put them in a jar and they're fine. You shake the jar, they all kill each other. Who's shaking the jar? You know, I just, that's just my theory. But um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen stuff in the last year that's just been nuts, like, you know, the, the virus, right? And the idea that why are we screwing around with germs like this in the first place? Right? <laughs> Letting them out, like, oh. It's and then the conspiracy theories and everything else. And it's like, wait a minute, okay. We've had close calls with stuff like this in the recent past several times, you know, SARS, all these things. We've had the Spanish influenza. We've had going back throughout human history. There have always been pandemics. And so, but this particular one, rather than have a plan for it, which we've never had, we're going to, uh, we're all going to hide and run off and, and sort of prevent 
natural selection from taking its course or whatever, whatever we're doing, no herd immunity. Like we're at the uh, whim of politicians who don't use science so much as their own uh, politics to dictate what we should do and how we should behave. And I think after a year of that, you see people behaving badly because they're just fed up. Right. And that's yeah, human nature. It's crazy. Like, just like keeping, it, it's like a kid keeping you from what you want. Like you tell mm-hmm. me, no, I say yes. Right. Right. The taboo. <laughs> and, and, and for me, like I've worked from home for years and years. And so to me, I looked at all of this, these lockdowns, these shutdowns, all these things to me personally, to feel fortunate that this is nothing more than an inconvenience to me personally. In other words, like it limits the amount of times I'm going to go to the grocery store, the places I'm going to go, the social interaction I'm going to have with my friends. Yes, that that's all been dialed way back, but it is relatively an inconvenience. You know, I mean, I've, I've listened to weird podcasts where people are theorizing like, oh, this is all a plan to get everybody to never go out again and never meet up again, that everything's going to be conducted from your home via FaceTime or Zoom or whatever, and that there's no more human interaction ever, uh, and this is how they want it. <laughs> and I don't believe that, but it is an interesting theory, right? Or there's the one where they're um, introducing new new currency. They're figuring out a way. Oh, yeah, if you if you buy into the – what are they, the QAnons? Or the, what those QAnon people are or Bitcoin. There was one that I – I came across somewhere, it might have been on Instagram, uh, somebody sent me a link and this guy was going on this rant about indictment zones and they were going to be rounding up all these Hollywood celebrities and Tom Hanks was part of this and it was just like, okay, what are they putting in the water where this dude lives? Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, Scientology and then yeah, I've seen it in all different forms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's enough crazy stuff out there, but... I mean, yeah, I, I just, I just kind of made this decision that I, I mean, Grasso and I had talked for years about bailing on social media, you know, just this idea of like, is this really what we need to be doing with our time? And, and yeah. I think it just came from these ideas that it's, it's like, look, you, you can put cool and interesting and informative stuff out to people, but if they can't absorb it and they just want to fight and argue about it, like what's the point, you know, like I'd rather sit with people and have a discussion in real time or talk on the phone or, or send lengthy emails and have real discussions than these bite sized chunks of nonsense, you know, and I think something gets lost in translation with the communication too. So for sure. And the other thing that I've learned through life is nobody in face real time togetherness no one talks as much shit as they do behind a fake name on a forum you know of course not like if you got some shit to say to me in real talk let's you know what i mean but like you know who i am but i don't know who you are right right. (laughs) well you know and that's sort of the final nail in the coffin for instagram for me was um you know i had already sort of been planning to to leave and not participate anymore uh when Jeff passed away back in, in March, um, you know, dude, I'm still dealing with the grief of him dying, right? I've accepted it. I've gotten to a point where I'm not just in pain over it every day, but it's still, I still haven't processed it 100%. Well, this idiot reporter at the LA Times published his autopsy results, 
right before the end of the year. I saw that a week and, before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Are you fucking and, kidding me? You know, poor, Jeff's poor mom and Vanessa like had to be aware of this. And it's like, you know, okay. Like for, for those of us who were really close to Jeff, like it's sort of the same thing with Jake. It's like, uh, dude, I got inundated when, when Jake died, all these people were like, do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? Do you know what happened? And that's the question that always bugs me because it's like, wait, does it matter more to you to know how somebody died than actually grieving their death or saying like, exactly. you know, wow, man, like, like, I'm sorry for your loss or wow, it's a big loss for all of us or whatever. And just, and not getting hung up in the minutia of how, like, does it matter how the guy's gone? You know, uh, why do you want to know? Is it, why is it important? So this whole thing comes out with Jeff's autopsy report and I must have gotten 28 or 29 DMs on Instagram that day, people calling me an enabler that you're supposed to be one of his friends. How could you let this happen? Didn't you know this guy was a drug addict? Didn't you do anything? And it's like, really? Like, you don't know me. What is so wrong with you that you have to come at me? And And I think, Greg, it's really painful because for years, all of us that were close mutual friends with Jeff, like tried to figure out how to help him with the struggles that he was going through, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he just, it got him and it got him in a way that was just so wrong. Like he was self-medicating and he bought some pills off the street and it just happened to be fentanyl, which killed him. Right. And we know this story because now it's been repeated a bunch of times. Um, he, he didn't plan to go out. You know, and and Jeff was one of the kindest, biggest hearted people I've ever known in my life. So to have that happen and to have people come at me like it just was like, dude, I got to get out of here. Right. You know, because I can't respond to that. How am I supposed to respond to that? (sighs) What have you have you done anything in particular that's helped you in the grieving process? And and like because I mean me and you are on the same boat as far as like, dude, I lost some, I, we, I talk about all the time. I've lost some real close people in my life and everyone grieves differently. And yeah, yeah uh, as far as the addict situation goes, the people that don't know about that, like to pass judgment on it is so pathetic and ridiculous and just to kick somebody down when they're down. I was so pissed about that article though. Like I couldn't believe that they waited. They shouldn't have done it at all, but why are you going to do it the week before Christmas? Like it was insane. Because it was a a dead news cycle, according to that reporter Uh um, that they needed something to fill page weight. And that's how he put it to Jeff's mom who just was completely upset by the whole thing. Well, um, she should be. I, I wrote an incendiary letter to the guy basically just telling him like, this is the way you, you know, I have no problem with publishing the autopsy results of somebody. I mean, it's, that's just facts, right? Uh-huh. But the way that it was presented was this sort of like, Oh, look, look at the celebrity guy that everybody loves. He's a drug addict. And and this this sort of idea that, okay, you write for a newspaper that sort of openly doesn't criticize drug mules bringing fentanyl in from Mexico all day long, but you're going to talk a bunch of shit about 
white pseudo celebrity guy from Costa Mesa who ODs on fentanyl, like, where do you get off? I mean, I, I didn't, it's a, it's a hard one, you know, but I think well, it, well, your question dealing with grief stuff, um, I, I've never been good with death, but I've somehow maintained an emotional detachment in a lot of cases. Um, you know, in certain cases, when your grandparents pass away and they're 95, it's like you, you prepare for it. You, sure. You're able to absorb it. And does it hurt any less? No. But you say like, yeah, you had a good run, right? You were 99. Yeah. Um, but somebody who's much younger, somebody who you're close to in a way that's different, you're not running around thinking about everybody's mortality all the time. You're not thinking like, tomorrow my friends could be gone. You're thinking today I'm with my friends and today is a good day. Right. right. So yeah, when these things happened, like I remember when Phil passed away, I was at print time standing there and somebody called over there and somebody just told me that I was standing at print time. And I just was like, what? No, I don't believe it. You know? Um, and that was one of the, the early times that I had to sort of process some grief and mm -hmm. I didn't, I, I just didn't process it. I just was like, oh, I can't, can't buy this, you know? And then when Ruben passed away, you know, that one, that one hit pretty hard because Ruben was a super rad dude and I was super tight with him at Deluxe and, you know, he was sick for a couple of years and it just, the only way I was able to sort of get through that one was to write a really long letter to his wife and say, you know, just let her know, like, I love this dude, you know, this guy, he made me laugh more than anybody I've ever known in my life. He's one of the <laughs> sweetest, kindest people. And I, I, I imagine that the loss you're feeling is a million fold what I'm feeling, but I just want to let you know like how much he touched my life. And it sort of, it sort of softened the blow, you know, um, this one. Yeah. With Grasso was just, it was completely unexpected. And it was like uh, the first week of the pandemic. I feel like, well, no, I mean, it was the pandemic. It was the first, it was a couple weeks into when it really started hitting here. Yeah, you know? like after the actually, lockdown, right? Yeah, yeah, when it, when that first started. And he had sort of expressed like, oh, my God, that's probably what's going to take me out. Um, <sighs> he was worried about, you know, getting it because uh, Jeff had a, he had a bad immune system. I mean, um, he had had hep C and he had gone through like chemo to cure it, but it left him with, you know, not a lot of immunity. So Jeff, you know, he used to catch colds and shit all the time. And he was freaked out by it. And, you know, I was always telling him like, yeah, no, nah, man, just you do this, keep your immune system up. Don't expose yourself to people. You're going to be fine. Right. And we even, you know, I made that graphic that the Mao with the mask graphic that got shot down and like, we, we were joking about it. Right. Um, and then when I got the call from Lance that morning, I just, dude, I just kind of like sat down in a chair and I, I I went through this denial for like a couple of hours. Like, no, no, I'm having a bad dream. I'm going to wake up. Right. I'm going to wake up. Like I just, he just sent me a video of Oliver skating last night. I was supposed to call him and this is not, this is not happening, you know? Um, and I just, I talked to Zimmerman. I talked to a bunch of people and of course, dude, we're in lockdown. None of us can get together. None of us can like, hug each yeah. other, you know, like cry together, go through all that stuff that's so important, right? And I uh, I was having a really hard time and I got to this point where I was having anxiety. I was, I felt like my brain was disconnected from my body. And finally, um, 
I spoke with Andrew Huberman, who's an old skate kid from Palo Alto, and he's now oh, yeah. a neuroscientist at Stanford. And he sort of talked through all this stuff with me on the phone, and he gave me these uh, these breathing exercises to do, and gave me some guided meditation stuff to do to try to get back on track with just being, you know, because it was such a hard thing to say, okay, like, what the fuck am I, what am I, why am I here? What am I doing? Like, I don't, I, I wake up in the morning, feel like I hadn't slept, you know, it was really miserable. So he put me on some stuff, which really quickly sort of settled me down um, to the point where I was able to really think through all the stuff with Jeff and my relationship with him and sort of start to realize like how impactful he was in my life and how important he was in my life and, and, and look at it from the perspective of how much I value that. And I will always value that instead of fuck, I'm angry. I'm, I'm sad. I'm hurt that he's dead and fuck, you know, like, um, but it was rough, man. It's hard to deal with. And it'll continue to be, and you'll never know when, you know, you'll have a rough day as opposed to like mm -hmm. each day is its own deal. And I feel like in so many ways, like when Eric J just passed, right. it, it, it not only hits you like a ton of bricks because it comes from nowhere, but it also kind of digs up some old shit. Like mm -hmm. Phil for me was the first that hit me like a close friend dying way too early. Right. And from there till now, I don't know if the pain is any different, but my response is way different, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, the meditation stuff, is that like kind of like breathing through your diaphragm or like well, what kind of stuff is that? So there's two different things. Like the, the guided meditations, I mean, there's a million of them that you can find on YouTube and they're all, they all sort of have different purposes. They're all, they're, they are based in focus breathing, but it's all designed for, for relaxation or relieving certain emotional psychological trauma or whatever it is i mean there's a million things oh your your foot hurts do this right um and i sort of dug through a bunch until i found one with somebody's voice that i could tolerate you know that didn't just annoy the shit out of me so that i could actually <laughs> relax and meditate like you're supposed to yeah yeah um but the larger thing was was the super oxygenated breathing and the wim hof method of breathing which is wim hof yeah which is like a it's, it's basically you're hyperventilating, but you're doing oh. it in a process which is a certain number of as deep as you can take a breath. And instead of a full exhale, you're just sort of letting it go and you continue to breathe. And then when you do like an, in a beginner mode, for example, you do 30 of these breaths. On the last breath, you exhale and you just leave your lungs empty and you just sit for as long as you can go. Um and then at the end of that time period, whatever it is, like I started out with like a minute, 30 seconds being the starting time. At the end of that, you take the biggest inhale that you can take through your diaphragm. And then you hold that and you sort of try to compress your body. So you're, you're sort of pressing it towards your head, if this makes sense. Um, and after 15 seconds, you let that go. And then you just repeat that cycle. Nice. So it, what it does is... Um, there's a, there's, a, there's a thing called the physiological sigh, uh, which Andrew details in some of his podcasts and stuff, which is this idea of taking these breaths through your nose. And when you're full, you kind of add another breath at the end. And then you sigh, you just uh, let it out. And you do three of these. And within 15 seconds, your anxiety levels, your heart rate, all of these things that are kind of going haywire in your body, just calm. Right? Huh. Just down. 
so with the Wim Hof method, there's some, you know, it's, um, there's different like Kundalini breathing. It's all kind of the same thing with different names. Okay. Um, that stuff takes you to a much deeper place. And what it, what it forces you to do is to focus only on your breathing. And then when you go into this meditative state of, of being empty of oxygen, um, what's happening is that all of these bad cells are being expelled from your body. I know it sounds weird, but it's actually, there's science in it. Um, no, uh, Ewan you can, does the same thing. Yeah. And you're storing all this oxygen. And so your body is now operating, your immune system is being boosted. Um, your, your circulation is operating more normally. If you have like any blood that's clotting, it's, it's helping break that down. I mean, it's like a million things that it does. Mm. Um, so I, so I started out on that and now I'm to the point where the exercises I do are 40 to 50 breaths and 10 cycles of that with like two to three minute breath holds, which being a off and on cigarette smoker, like I impressed myself being able to yeah. hold my breath that long, right? Wow. Um, but yeah, after doing those exercises, um, you know, my head's clear, any anxiety or, or stress or depression that I had before that has cleared up remarkably. Um, and I have been exercising on a treadmill a lot too. So those things in combination have helped me sort of like feel like I'm functioning. And if right. I'm functioning, I'm, I'm able to process those things where in the middle of the day, something pops into my head about Jeff and it's like, fuck, that bums me out, but I can tolerate it. I can cope. Right. Right. So, yeah. Well, on the, on the bright side, how many, how many graphics do you think you got with Jeff? Oh, you, got, you, you got like a lot. Yeah. Well, we did about a dozen across those years. Um, no, I mean, know, ones I, that didn't get done. Like, oh, ones that didn't get done? Yeah, there's got to be close to 60. I mean, there's <laughs> some that even when I was blowing them out on Instagram and showing everybody all the insanity that we were getting uh, into that never went anywhere, there's more. I just yeah. kind of got to a point where I'm like, you know, this is cathartic and cool to an extent, but I think now I'm just dwelling on it a little bit too much. So I'm going to, mm. I'm going to bring it up to the present and kind of cut it off, but there's more, you know, mm. whether or not any of those ever get produced. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. What do you think he would be if there's a heaven or what an afterlife and he's looking down and he sees that fucking magazine drop with him on the cover? Is he like, fuck you guys? Or is he like, I had to die. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think it's probably a 50, 50. He's probably fuck you guys. And he's probably like, fuck. Yeah. At the same time. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, the whole story about Jake giving him shit about never yeah. the cover. Uh -huh. and it's like that one thing, like, I can't believe how many times that came up in our conversations, you know, there's dude, Jeff and I would talk like almost every day. And sometimes we'd be on the phone for like two, three hours. Right. Uh -huh. Cause he's just sitting down in Costa Mesa, like, especially when he was hurt and couldn't skate. Like, He's just sitting there twiddling, right? And he's like, oh, yeah. Like, so I call him up and then we just get into this gnarly conversations, this deep shit. And just um, we'd be on the phone for hours, you know. But that subject came up so many times. And I know it really bugged him. Uh, yeah, it was a weird one, you know. So I I was stoked when I saw it. And I, I was super stoked because for me, the connection to like the HP ramp 
and that yeah. time. Yeah. And that's the first place I encountered Jake. And the first time I encountered Jake, he was unconscious on the flat bottom at that ramp. Like <laughs> there was some poetic justice in all of that. Like it was, it was weird, but, but I, you know, I, I had to sit around and think about it. And I was like, dude, I was feeling so down for a solid month. It was just really hard for me to like do anything I needed to be doing and, and carrying on with my daily existence. Mm-hmm. And I got to this point where I realized like, you know, I know Grosso so well that wherever he's at, he's screaming at me right now. Stop being a fucking bitch. Pick yourself up off the ground and fucking do the shit you need to do. Right? Like just fucking stop pissing and moaning about the whole thing. Right? Yeah. Can't change it. And I mean, he was an extremely rational human being. So that's, and given his personality and his nature, that's exactly what he would be saying to all of us. Right? Like, like, yeah, I was there. Now I'm not fucking get on with it. Right. Like, it's not about me. It's about you do it. Right. And I think that's what comes across in the love letters too, is just that idea like, Hey, like, yeah, I occupy a place in this and I'm sharing these things with you, but this is your thing, man. Go do your thing. Right. He ends every episode. He's like, fuck, turn this shit off and go skate. Yeah. And I think he'd say the same thing just about life. Like, you know, Hey, like get out there and do it. Stop sitting around wasting time. Right. It's been a tough one, but I think, you know, we all just got to keep doing what we're doing keep living, you know? Amen. Try to let everybody know you love them man. tell people you love them if you love them. Right. It's so important. Like I, I always thought that was such a just foolish notion forever when I was young, like ah, whatever. And then when I got old, I realized like, fuck, I really love these guys and I'm going to tell them and I don't feel even remotely like homophobic or, or soft or, you know, wimpy about saying that to people. Right. You know, so it's important. You know, it turns people, out oh. that phrases become cliches for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like, that's yeah. so cliche. It's like, yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a lot of truth in it. And I think when you embrace that and you, you know, like, I mean, you're, you're close to somebody and you really care about them and you love them like that. Just, just let them know, man, as cheesy as it sounds. I mean, half the time somebody's gonna be like, Oh yeah, fuck off. You know, whatever. But you know, they, they heard it, you said it, you know? And I think if you express it, it, it makes it easier to deal with the loss because you don't feel like I never said what I should have said. You know, I never expressed my feeling, my true feelings to you about how I felt about you. And now you're not here. Well, I told that guy I loved him so many times I can't even remember, you know, and it just, uh, it counts for something, I think. Absolutely. Same thing with Preston. Like I just, I'm so blessed to have just had the time I spent and I, I, I dwell on that. Like, I just, I'm like, yeah, it, all this shit that sucks is obvious, but what's rad is that like, look at all these trips and we live in a fucking era that everything's documented. So, right. <clears throat> I mean, there is those benefits, although sometimes when somebody makes a post like Grant Taylor, you're not on Instagram, but last night Grant Taylor put up this clip of Preston diving under Raven riding his bike. And it's so insane. And he's like, I had to repost this so I don't lose it again because I guess he lost it. But like sometimes those clips will come up and I'll be like, oh, dude, I wish there was like a spoiler alert or something like you're about to see something that might shake your heart a little, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Preston's one of those dudes. I I wish I had actually like gotten to know that guy because, you know, it's just the 
the disconnect between being in Southern California and whatever. But I was always the few times that I ever encountered that dude. He just had some this different kind of energy that was super rad. They and, don't even. They've never built them like that, and they. I don't think yeah, they're gonna build them like that. It just. It, it's just. You could tell, like the second that you encountered the guy, like his foot is on the gas, right? It, like he. He's going. He's not stopping. And I think one of my one of my favorite things I ever saw, like uh, I think Buddy or Rick at Six Stair has it. There's just this little clip of him. They're in. Um, where is it they go every year in the big contest in Europe? Copenhagen. Uh, Copenhagen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're sitting on the banks of some canal in Copenhagen. Oh, and Preston and Pre- jumps in. Preston's sitting there, and he just says, "Frogman left," and he just <laughs> tumbles over the wall the into this. Best. Who knows what the hell is in that water? Yeah, right? how cold it is, and <laughs> Preston just pops up like, "Oh, big dogs in." Yeah, like I did that, and it just yeah. that to me is like the epitome of like, dude, that is a human living life to the fullest even if it's the silliest most ridiculous shit you've ever seen it's like you you can't not respect that right absolutely uh, and unfortunately you know sometimes those those personalities those characters those those people that burn that bright they truly burn half as long you know we all get left to sort it out and, and try to carry on and and try to pay homage to those people in whatever way we can you know for sure well, dude, I'm fucking stoked. Thanks for fucking waking up and doing coffee time with me. I oh, appreciate yeah. the time Thank and catching you. up. We've been friends for 30 years. That's amazing. Yeah, I never yeah. really figured out, but uh, Greer in 1990, that's a perfect. Greer and, and the and the RC meter. ramp where you guys were at, that was pretty much it. Mookie's. And Mookie's that, was. Uh, hey, you, you know Eric Ryder, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's my that's my dude. I grew yeah. up. He got me like me and him got our boards together. When he hears this and hears Mookie's, he's just gonna sit back and smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys all came down and rode with us. It was super out. I remember that whole crew. You had that guy Fletch, and there was yeah. Uh, and then when you guys started running around with Phil and stuff, that was insane. Like, I mean, we just we were like super blessed every time that guy was around. <laughs> you know, just. Absolutely. A lot of uh, years, man. A lot of years. Do you got a song that you want to throw on to fucking end this thing with? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> kiss Detroit Rock City. What? I, I was a Kiss kid before punk, so I guess that's... that's Live or studio? Uh, studio is good. All right. There we go. The car crash. Get down. Dude, I I appreciate you. I respect all the stuff that you've done and stuff and, and your mind, especially like I love catching up and like running ideas off you. Reach out to me anytime. I love when you fucking chime in and say you listen to a podcast and and you appreciate this one part that spoke to you. I love that shit, man. So Dude, I, I dig. I, I got to listen to them all. It's like one of those things. It's like, oh, I got time for this today. I'm going to listen to it. But it's great it's for a shitty. drive. Thanks, dude. I am super psyched. I, I love what you're doing. And shoot, keep it going. It's fucking great. Fuck yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Right on, Schmitty. Cheers. Late.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com, where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes, with extra photos and videos. Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at TalkingSchmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper.